Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 180 of the show, and it's Wednesday, February the 28th, as I record this. Coming up is an incredibly geeky interview with Dario Alberto Magnani about Fiore's Three Volters of the Sword. If you have my book, From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice, The Longsword Techniques of Fiore de Liberi, you should dig it out and grab a pen, because you're going to need it. Now, I am just back from Helsinki, where I had a fantastic time, as always. Uh, on Saturday, we had an armoured combat and polearm seminar, which went really well. And it was particularly enjoyable to see some a couple of students showed up at the beginning of the class, and I was like, oh my God, I haven't seen them for 20 years. And it's a, a married couple who used to train with me back literally 20 years ago. And what with family and work and other things sort of fell by the wayside for a bit. And now that their schedule has cleared up, they seem to be coming back. I cannot tell you how enjoyable it is to see that kind of thing. So it was a lovely seminar, um, armored combat, pole arms, so spears, pole axes, if you've ever wanted to defend with a dagger against someone who's trying to stab you with a spear, that would have been the seminar to come to. So, on the Monday, uh, I went to a photography studio uh, to shoot preliminary footage for the uh, virtual reality or augmented reality sword handling and solo training project that we're working on. Um, we, are, we shot a bunch of footage. Uh, it all looks really good. Um, I don't actually have access to that footage at the moment because the person who's editing it is working on it and they haven't sent me anything yet. But as things become available, I will send them along and, and let you know about it. So it's, it's very exciting, but it is very early days and it's not unlikely that we'll end up running a crowdfunding project to raise the money to actually complete this thing. So watch this space for some super high-tech 21st century medieval swordsmanship stuff. And on the Tuesday, uh, I went to see a physiotherapist. Um, he was at my longsword seminar last November, and the organizer, Ari Posso, encouraged me to see him about my knee. So if you've been on this, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard about my wretched knee before. Um, I've been seeing physios of one sort for another for various things over the last 35 years or so. Um, but this chap, who is Eric Ellison at Physio Sakura in Helsinki. He is probably the best I've come across. Extremely knowledgeable, very thorough, and he emphasized ways of teaching me to fix myself rather than going in and doing a manipulation or something and then, you know, when it stiffens up again, having to go back. Now, if you're on my mailing list, you, there is a link to a video that I shot. I mean, I came away from that session with eight videos of exercises I'm supposed to do. Um, and I put a link to one of them in this week's newsletter. If you're not signed up to the newsletter already, then go to swordschool.com and sign up. And you can, you know, this, today's newsletter has a link to that video. Now, next month, I am off on my travels again, this time to Singapore and Wellington in New Zealand. Um, I'll just give you the basic seminar details so you can get an idea of if you're in the area, whether you want to come. So on April the 6th in Singapore, there's Fury versus Lichtenau, or How to Beat Up Your German Friends, 
where we'll be doing a bunch of uh, basic Fiore stuff and then looking at applying the basic idea of Fiore's art of arms to countering, for example, Zverikows or whatever else. Um, it's, I think it's very important to remember that Fiore was not writing the swordsmanship system that everyone was doing. He had his own particular way of doing things, which means, of course, that his system does not expect you to be facing someone who does the exact same system. That would be silly. Uh, that would be like furious students fencing each other. That is not how it's supposed to work. So it works perfectly well against the German stuff if you just apply it correctly. And if you want to know how that's done, go to Singapore on April the 6th. And on April the 7th, we have uh, a rapier seminar where we will have a look at basically an overview of uh, Capoferro's Grand Simulacro, uh, his style of fencing is shown in Grand Simulacro. And... We'll have a look at developing skills, so bridging the gap between choreographic execution of plays versus um, actually fencing. Then I'm heading off to Wellington and on Saturday, April the 13th, we will have another Capoferro seminar. So you don't need to go to both. If you have to fly to, from Singapore to Wellington, that would be silly. I'm doing it, but you don't have to. Um, the seminar title is Tidy Up Your Rapier. So we're going to have a look at uh, basically, people who are already fencing rapier, what do we do to neaten up their game, make them more precise, more efficient, um, and better able to apply the system? And then on Sunday, April the 14th in Wellington, we have Integrating Fiore's Art of Arms. Spending the day working on the wrestling, dagger, and longsword stuff, and seeing how the wrestling applies to the dagger, and the dagger applies to the longsword, and it all sort of applies to each other. Almost as if it's a system, not just a collection of tricks. Huh, funny that. So if you're in the area, please do come. It would be lovely to see you. And I don't do any of the kind of local logistics administration for these things because I'm not even in the country. So have a look in today's newsletter for contact details for the organizers who will be delighted to help you sign up and tell you all about exactly where it's going to be, what time we're going to start, all that sort of stuff. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Dario Alberto Magnani, who is better known as Mr. Thok, who is a longtime scholar of the Italian single combat tradition from the late medieval early Renaissance period, and a world-renowned historical martial arts instructor and gear designer. As a swordsman, he specializes in northern Italian fencing from the early 15th to the 16th centuries, i.e. Fiore, Vadi, and into the Bolognese, and he's a successful competitor and sought-after instructor. In the late 2010s, he became a historical martial arts professional between his teaching activities and the founding of THOC, Personal Armour, a business through which he designs and sells innovative historical martial arts gear, such as the THOC gloves, which are popular enough to have attracted low-quality copycat competition, but always buy the originals, of course. All right. Now, I'll just add to the formal bio. The reason I'm chatting to Dario today is because I met him in Spain, um, at the Panoplia, and we ended up spending probably five or six hours of the weekend um, discussing details of Fiore stuff and other things. And I thought, I you know what? I think that's <laughs> underestimating the amount of hours, actually. <laughs> I that's think probably you're probably more. right. All right. So without further ado, Dario, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you? I live in Italy, uh, specifically I live in Ravenna, so rather near to Bologna, which is probably more known to the Hima crowd. Fair enough. 
Um, and I'm extremely jealous of you living in Italy, of course. Um, I was in Italy over Christmas, and every time I go back to Italy, my soul just expands a little bit. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it does that. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's many myths about Italy being the beautiful country and whatever. And while they are rather true, I think that the, the most important part of being in Italy is living in between everything that's been historical always in into your everyday life i mean my, my club has a sal in bologna probably half a kilometer from where marozzo was teaching so we we do truly live into where everything happened yeah it's it's sort of like you walk out the door and wander around the town for a little bit and you might as well have gone to a museum there's like ancient stuff everywhere yeah it's fabulous yeah <laughs> I love um, it, honestly. <laughs> I bet. Okay. So I ask everyone this. Um, uh, so you just give us a bit of background. How did you get into historical martial arts? So uh, I've been doing HIMA for over 15 years now. And at the very beginning, uh, I was a reenactor. Uh, probably the huge majority of the people that got into HIMA over 10 years ago and, and more, uh, probably... All of us, or almost all of us, had started through that hybrid thing that existed back then where you would do reenactment and some fencing and study some manuals and do some show stuff uh, at yeah. reenactment events. It was that sort of hybrid, but I think that in Italy we've been one of the first clubs that mm, methodically uh, used to um, study and uh, work on manuals over the whole winter while only going to to reenactment events over the summer. So uh, there were other clubs back then, obviously, but it wasn't as widespread as it got later. So uh, this is why I can say I've been doing HIMA for 15 years because I've been into the, the whole thing for 17, 18 now, probably. Uh, mm. I'm not sure right now. And uh, the very I mean, first couple ones were more reenactment, and then it became much more HEMA over the time. Although in 2002, I went to Italy for a historical martial arts event, and it wasn't reenactment at all. I mean, there was yeah. FISAS, which was doing yeah, that's something... What, it's certainly, certainly fencing and somewhat historical. That's what it was referring to, because before it started becoming a more widespread uh, thing, there were a mm. few clubs which also tended to become huge quite fast, uh, like Saladar Michele Marozzo and Fisas and probably a few others. But back then I didn't really uh, know them in first person, so I mm. might be... Uh, missing someone uh that's not intentional in case <laughs> sure. uh, but yeah there were like those few larger clubs that uh tended to be doing mostly or even just hema actually my club came came from a sort of a splitting from from a, a rib of Saladar Michele Marozzo as someone split out because they also wanted to do reenactment right so it, it came the other way around Already okay. in 2009, eight. What, what's the name of your club? It's Società dei Vai, which uh, is established in Bologna and also has a couple other salts around the region. Okay, could you say that again for the non-Italian speakers? So, uh, it's uh, Società dei Vai. Okay. Uh, so but 
the name comes from a, a, a real, a really existing Bolognese society of arms of the 13th century. Uh, so we, we got the name from there and it kept that name for now 15 years, almost, I, I think. And okay. um, yeah, we, we are based in Bologna fundamentally. While we have something in Modena, we've been in Imola and Ravenna at different times also. Excellent. So you had something of a background in historical martial arts when you decided to start THOC. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right. My first question around THOC is what does THOC mean? Why so, THOC? Uh, many people think there's a deep meaning behind that. Actually, that's been my pseudonym for uh, 20, 20 plus years because that's been the name of my first character in Dungeons and & Dragons. And then it's been my pseudonym... Um... Over forums over the 2000s, and My so God. I've been dragging that name over. <laughs> like, if you ever met a thok or a true thok, because there was so many else using that name, uh, so okay. somewhere it became true thok in a couple places, you've actually been running into me probably in the last 25 uh, years. <laughs> okay, so, so. See, I had I thought it was probably the sound that a sword makes when it hits one of your clubs. Yeah, many people that was... think that it's either a sound or an acronym of something. No, it's just one of the names that you are allowed to pick when playing a barbarian and <laughs> in, D &D. in role playing games. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Um, okay, so I hope we don't get sued what... by wizards for that. <laughs> no, I think you'll be fine. Um, all right, so you actually you know, make an income from selling these fencing gloves. And yeah. uh, you told me the story about how you went from an idea to a crowdfunding campaign to actually creating a business. Mm -hmm. And it was to me, it was fascinating. So I'm going to ask you the question because I want to hear it again. So how did you set up, how did you come to create the gloves and turn it into an actual business? So uh, this started quite far behind in time because we are in 2024 and I could say that the first idea that brought me here came more than 10 years ago because it was around 2013 and I was competing uh, in mostly in sidesword uh, actually at the time and I felt like we were missing uh, something that allowed us to fence freely to fence uh, um, without hindrance uh, inside sword. So originally that, that was uh, the first passage. Um, then over time I switched over to more and more longsword and I realized that uh, I actually needed my fingers for longsword too. Um, sorry for anyone who doesn't think so. And <laughs> oh no, no, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all about <laughs> grip changes with longsword. I mean, you need, you need basically unrestricted grip mobility to fence yeah, well um, with a longsword. I don't want to offend anyone, but I'm used to saying that people that say that you can do everything you have to do with a longsword with a mitten, <laughs> everything you do can do with a longsword using a mitten. Yes, what you can also do is you can take some epoxy resin and you can just glue your fists to the handle and yeah, use a sword like that. I mean, why not? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we love clubs, effect. but those are HEMA clubs and not soft clubs. So. Right. Yeah, okay. So, so, yeah, so from, you felt there was a need for yeah. um, better hand protection. So yeah. here's the first question. To my mind, this is a solved problem. 
because we have articulated steel gauntlets from the 15th century and I have cheap um, 15th century style fingered gauntlets which work beautifully. I can literally play the trumpet while wearing them. They have absolute, they give you absolute freedom to move my hands however I want. If I could play the piano at all, I could play the piano probably while wearing them. Um, so why, why not just use those? So I knew this question was coming. Uh, yeah. And uh, we've had this conversation before. There are no, yeah, yeah. no, no uh, gotchas. So my my point about that is that while you are um, fundamentally right in terms of mobility of the mm -hmm. of the hand, uh, there's a few other concerns uh, for me in that. Apart from the, the the general one, which I don't really agree with, which is safety, because many people say that steel gauntlets are um, less safe than plastic or foam ones because they could hurt your partner. Which is bullshit. Uh, You're I holding agree. a four foot long steel rod. Absolutely, that's, agreed. That's the thing that's gonna hurt the partner. <laughs> agreed, but with a caveat, uh, mm. I have three good answers for this, apart okay. from the weight one. Because the first one that comes up is weight. I mean, a full steel glove weights three times, probably a pair of my gloves, and But I agree with you that if you compare that weight with the mitten, the mitten makes no sense. But again, the mitten makes no sense. So yeah. uh, we are on the same page of that, on that. But um, apart from the weight problem, which, as you told me, is sort of mitigated by fit, um, I would say that the main um, set of reasons is the difference between the properties of a synthetic material intended as a modern one and uh, metal steel. Uh, so that, uh, as an example, steel scales are much more prone to damaging other people's equipment and to suffering not, uh, uh, how to say that in English, uh, damages that are not immediately um, making the item unusable. That happens a lot with fencing masks, as an example, which take damage, don't show it, And next time you're getting a face waffle, if you are lucky. Um, okay, but hang on a second, hang on a second. Mm -hmm. All right. I've been using steel gauntlets now for nearly mm -hmm. 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. And I have never encountered a problem of my gauntlets damaging somebody else's equipment without my intending to do it, which I don't tend to do, right? Well, it's, it, what it just kind doesn't of equipment happen. are you talking about? Because in this case, I'm thinking All of, it. of fabric. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, 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 like that. fencing jackets, padded jackets, elbow pads, um, sport fencing masks, proper historical martial arts fencing masks, helmets, armor, whatever. I've, I have never encountered damage to other people's equipment from my gauntlets. And, I mean, you know, uh, if I, if I, if I'm going to hit somebody in the face with my gauntlet, it's no different to hitting them with a pommel, right? And so you exercise this, you exercise exactly the same amount of care with a gauntlet as you do with the pommel, and there's no problem. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not afraid for the fencing mask. I'm saying that every time you enter a grapple or mm -hmm. some kind of action that involves getting very close, uh, yeah. scratching the fabric in the arms of, the, of other people's jackets, scratching the fabric on their chests and stuff like that, I've seen that happen. I mean, uh, okay. it doesn't make immediate um, huge damage we could say also because that stuff is designed to be hit by swords right but uh 
if there's burrs on your finger lanes or whatever, they are okay, so, yeah, easier to, to, to become uh, dangerous. I yeah, think so that's one of, uh, of the legitimate concerns. Okay, but that's only true if you don't look after your equipment properly. Agreed, and I must say that not everyone is uh, as good as they should be uh, maintaining their sure. equipment. And the sword is going to be picking up burrs during the during the fencing match much more readily than the gauntlets because if you're doing it yeah. right, your sword takes a lot more blade on blade or steel on steel impact than your gauntlets do. Yeah. So yeah, but we can't uh, go around steel for swords. So people are used. Oh, some people do. Down there. <laughs> well, some, some some people some people use plastic swords too. I oh, mean, yeah. where where does where does this safety madness end? Swords are dangerous. This is a dangerous activity. We need to be careful. We need to be training properly. And you know, I I, I totally don't buy the um, steel gauntlets as somehow dangerous, more no, dangerous not, than plastic not, gauntlets. So I'm not calling them dangerous. I'm calling them uh, more prone to causing damage to other people's equipment. Which is, uh, I think, undeniable. Of course, the more you maintain them, the more you work on them, the more you keep them in shape, and the more you check them, the least this difference uh, okay. happens. All right. I so agree what, with that. Okay, so what's, what's your, your next point of why synthetics are a good idea? Point number three is yeah. a point of looks. I know this is absolutely. <laughs> okay. I know this is absolutely uh, nonsensical from your point of view. Yeah. But uh, I think you're aware that a lot of people in Hima buy stuff because of how it looks. Yep. And not of because of how it performs. I mean, okay. you've been talking about cheap copycats before, and I can ensure you that people buy those because they look like something, not because yep. they are. Something. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, yeah, the looks have honestly a, a, a huge um, impact on on people's uh, feeling about that product. Okay. I mean, I've, I've actually been encountering that uh, early on in the project because my gloves look too thin and fragile. I mean, they <laughs> okay. look. Very, they are very light. They feel very light, very thin, and people would just wouldn't believe mm, that they. Would yeah, get the them. idea that they could work. That's why the original bash tests uh, got so so popular because they okay. they broke through the the the, 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 the previous idea. mindset of the person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, um, to my mind, I mean, the only reason I can think of to get a pair of synthetic gauntlets is because. If you want to enter certain tournaments, those tournaments require non-steel gauntlets for no good yeah. reason that I can think of. Um, but was, those are the rules, and so you have to have non-steel gauntlets to take part, which is insane. There was insane, another one, actually. Those are the rules. What? Uh, there was another one, actually. Okay. Uh, which is, though, very specific to, to the way I work, uh, yep. which is the presence of penetration-resistant materials. Because with steel okay. gauntlets, if you get thrust in the palm... Mm -hmm. you, you get thrust through. If you get thrust, unluckily. I, I mean, I've seen people get thrust through oh, every I've, kind I've, of glove. Okay. I've, I've, I've seen that too. Um, what I do with my steel gauntlets is I, I have proper FIE standard fencing yeah. gloves inside them, which have, I mean, is that as good penetration resistance as you get with yours? In the uh, that's probably the same level, depending on which pair of gloves you get, the same or lower 
Yeah, I mean, so, the I, I mean, you're, you're right. The you know the the kind of the shitty gardening gloves that normally come inside a pair of steel gauntlets are not fit for purpose. Yeah. So, like, step one is you rip those out and you glue in and stitch in a pair of really good fencing gloves, and then you get that equivalent. So, so yeah, I I, I take your point. You do need a yeah. for penetration resistance in the palm. You do the, need the, a kind of modern fabric. Truth is that you need a lot of work around your steel gauntlets to make them fit the Hema scene uh, as easily uh, as something designed for that. Just that. I mean, you have to switch out the inner gloves. You have to keep the burst down. You have to keep checking for cracks and damage. You have to keep the riveting in and out, changing the against something that fundamentally you take it out of the box, you put it on, you go fencing. It's people sometimes yeah. just appreciate being ready out of the box. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. So it's, um, you know. Okay. So this is why you, you decided to make them. And having decided to make them, what did you do next? Uh, so I started, uh, actually, that's not when I decided to make them, but when I decided there was the need for something like them. And as many people know, the first thing I did was reaching out to an existing business and uh, trying to design something with them which was intended as a, as a hybrid. So it had one finger and a three fingers mitten because that was the smallest change from what was already available and already doable. And right. we did that and it, it did work. I mean, not everyone did like it, but the fact that it's been for like two years, their best seller, uh, the best selling well, product well, overall, I think that it means something. What company was this? That was Neiman Fencing. Neiman Fencing. Uh, are they still yeah. going? Nope. All right. Okay. They're no, they thinking. went down. I... They went down uh, a couple of years ago uh, after several problems they had, okay. which I'm not going to discuss. Uh... No, 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 no. That's that's <laughs> no. That's that was just unfortunate business stuff. There we go. Yeah. Um. So so you developed this sort of. With Neiman Fencing, you developed a kind of hybrid Ninja Turtle sort of thing where you've got yeah, the four fingers separate and three fingers together and then, and then the thumb. I yeah. seem to remember seeing some of those. Um, yeah, yeah, they've been quite popular back then mm -hmm. because they were the only option to the only clamshell existing at that time with the exception of the sparring gloves. So there were right. just the, the lobsters, the sparring gloves, uh, and those. Okay. So they were one of three. <laughs> so you, you helped them develop that? Yeah, uh, I had the initial idea and sent some design ideas and some drawings and we did a couple iterations and then we, we got that out and it worked. I mean, it, it's all at least, <laughs> so let's right. say it worked. And, uh, and then I decided to move on because of mm, how things were going with, uh, within uh, our business, I wouldn't even call those business relationships. It, it wasn't really something you could call business. I was just deciding something for someone else. And then I decided to move out of that. And okay. I started designing something with five fingers. And uh, also, I would say on the, on the, on the wave of interest, uh, around that, that had been existing for a few years at that point for the programflets. And yeah. so I 
moved on to thinking what can happen if I can get every single finger separate and I started designing what I needed and then it took a couple years to design the materials necessary to make that possible. So how, let me just possible. Let, let me just hone in on this. You designed the material itself. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what is this material? So there's actually more than one material that is custom made for us into the gloves. The main one is the is the um, the foam that is inside the back of the fingers, uh, which I registered as scutum, S C U T U M. Right, like shield for the yeah, in shield. Roman, yeah. yeah. In Latin, sorry, not Roman. Uh, <laughs> and um, that's fundamentally a, a, a viscoelastic fabric, a viscoelastic foam backed by a fabric, so that it uh, contemporaneously acts as a plate on impact, spreading energy on a wider area, just like a yep. rigid plate, and as an as an impact absorbing uh, soft material behind that superficial plate so that the surface becomes a plate and the back area remains soft and takes the, the pressure. So basically a single material is both um, like the shell and the padding underneath it. Yeah, but it only becomes the shell under impact. Out right, so, impact it hard, it soft. so it hardens up on impact. Yeah, well, hardens up on the exact term, no, no, technical. Stiffens up uh, on impact. Yeah, basically, yeah, okay. the surface stiffens up on impact. How the hell did you design something like that? With a lot of effort. <laughs> okay, okay, but I mean, do you have some kind of background in chemical yeah, engineering? Yeah, I'm or? a chemist. I'm a chemist. I've been studying ah. chemistry, and actually, I was I was into the university for industrial chemistry back then. On at a certain point, I had to decide whether to drop off of that or drop off of being Mr. Thok. And <laughs> so I dropped off of that. So I never finished it, actually. And uh, But yeah, I've been studying industrial chemistry and also chemistry at my high school. So I've been like doing 10 right. years of chemistry before that. And okay. um, yeah, it, that's one of the materials. And the other ones are less complex, we could say, but... Like even the fabric on on the palm of the gloves mm -hmm. is custom made for us uh, by a business that mm, that is mm, known for making uh, the, the the highest quality fencing fabrics that are around, and we got a custom version of it so that we could keep the thickness of the 350 material, but 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 having 800 newton material with just changes of the yarns and not of the structure. Okay, so you've got a fencing manufacturer making like sport fencing equipment mm -hmm. to make 800 Newton penetration resistance fabric at the thickness normally associated with 350 Newtons of penetration resistance. So you've got yeah. twice as much penetration resistance in the same thickness. Yeah. Okay. That's, I just wanted to highlight that because not everyone listening has sufficient background in how these things work yeah, yeah, to understand uh, quite, quite what a significant thing that actually is. And it's right. in, in, in case it's not obvious, I am massively impressed by all this. I don't yeah. particularly, <laughs> I don't particularly care about synthetic gauntlets because I'm happy with steel. But but this whole process, I am hugely impressed because also I can see all sorts of products where I would absolutely want this stuff. So like you know, fencing plastrons or whatever could be made yeah. of this stuff, Definitely. right? 
Um, but anyway, so 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 you, you developed these fabrics and found people to manufacture them for you. Yeah, fundamentally. And then what happened? Yes. Uh, basically, everything in this globe has been like, I need this. This doesn't exist. I invent it and find someone that's capable of doing that part. Consider that they are made in the parts are made in seven different countries over three different continents. So okay. uh, yeah, it's a we're, we're, quite we're, we're, widespread we're, thing. <laughs> okay, but did you did you get to that point before you actually started producing the gloves? No. Uh, okay, so before, what happened? What Let's happened keep it chronological is, for the sake of consistency. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. So uh, we were in 2015 at the point uh, I had been intending to make uh, a globe that is fingered, five-fingered, and uh, I started designing it and designing the materials that were necessary for it and designing the processes that could bring there. And then when everything was more or less ready, I decided to check the interest of the community and I expected 10, 20 pairs to go out uh, by people very interested in seeing new stuff. And in the first couple of weeks, we broke uh, the initial goal, the additional goal, and I think at least two more added goals that I kept adding. Okay. And so I closed the crowdfunding at that point. Okay, so you expected 10 or 20 sales and you got about how many? A couple of hundred? Uh, probably, yeah. I think that's that ended up being in excess of a couple hundred. So more than 10 times the amount of orders you expected? Okay. Yeah, especially considering that I closed the sales at a certain point, the, 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 the pre-sales, the, the crowdfunding, yeah. and, and took uh, like, I, I think, two weeks to think about it and decide whether to just quit it and refund the money uh, because it was impossible to make that amount of, of gloves in a single facility making everything. So okay. I... <laughs> the, the average listener probably doesn't build much stuff. So let me just clarify things a little bit yeah. and tell me if I'm getting it right. Okay, so basically you were prepared to make 10 or 20 pairs of, this, of, of these gloves um, and that could be reasonably done with the facilities that you had. But when the crowdfunder did 10 times better than that, you realized that you're going to have a problem of scale. And so you closed the crowdfunder before it was actually ended. I, and thought I about, sort of paused it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, yeah. Yeah, you paused it um, to find out, to basically figure out whether you could actually fulfill those orders at that scale or just give everybody their money, give everybody their money back and go, this is too popular, I can't handle it, I don't want to be a making gloves 24-7, so no, I'm just going to stop. Right? Yeah, so exactly. You, okay, and obviously, given that you're still producing these things, you figured out a way to actually scale from yeah, what's supposed I, to be basically making them at your kitchen table to creating an industrial process for producing them. Yeah, I, I okay. fundamentally needed to take a couple of weeks to decide whether or not I wanted to make a, a side project that was intended to break even more or less or, or around that, if I wanted to make it become a, a life um, a life changing thing, something mm -hmm. that uh, could potentially have required me to change the direction of my life entirely. I mean, I was working in the chemical industry. I was I was doing completely different things, and 
this was just intended to be something done for the community to, to allow other people to have the equipment I, I didn't have uh, access to. And when I realized that there was such a, a level of interest in that, I had to decide whether or not I wanted to, to, to make this probably my, either main, my job or, or my tombstone, depending. <laughs> right. Okay. And you decided to do it. So what did that process entail? How did you scale it? I, I needed to redesign every single part of the glove to uh, be as similar as the original intended part as possible while being possible to produce within already existing implants and... Uh, uh, no, not implants, sorry, plants. Factories. Factories, yeah, yeah. because um, if you need to both produce the material and the production system of the part, That's then very nobody, <laughs> nobody is going to take on that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. you either choose a new material for something that already exists as a process of production, or you devise a new process of production for a material that already exists. And and producing a new process of production is many, many millions of euros to do, generally speaking. It depends because actually the, the, the scutum we were discussing about before required both the material and the process of production. Okay. But fortunately, I managed to, to find a solution that required um, machinery that was already existent right. to just be marginally modified to to allow the new process of production. Right. Yeah, the last thing you want is for factories to have to buy in enormous great big machines to make yeah. your product. Yeah, yeah that okay. would put you like millions behind. Exactly. So, 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 you're, so you adjusted the design a little bit to make it mass producible in effect. Yeah, fundamentally okay. that, that was the point. I needed to make it scalable to right. make it so that making two people do this comes out in 10 pieces a month, making four people do this comes out in 20, etc. Yeah. So scalable, while the first project fundamentally required two people to make several passages. I do this, then I pass you this, and you do that, and they pass it back to you. It, it was a very uh, cottage industry process intended right. for two to three people as a hobby. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So you found factories and whatnot. Just, just talk us through, because it blows me away. Talk, talk us through like the, how these gloves actually now get made. So how did uh, you actually fulfill I'll, the orders? I'll go as in depth as I can because uh, I can't unveil everything. Uh, no, of a course. few things need to, to be uh, <laughs> trade secrets. kept as trade secrets, <laughs> but not much of it. Uh, so the, everything starts with um, the production of uh, H, of HDPE filaments, uh, which uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to name businesses just because I don't have sure. um, accords to do that. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 just like like the people making the fencing fabric and yeah. the people making the foam or whatever. That that's yeah, fine. You exactly. So that's no, no one's going to be looking them up online. There's a business that makes um, HDP yarns, which then get moved to the business I found that makes my fabric. So and what is HDP? 
it's a kind of plastic fundamentally okay. it's actually not exactly HDP but it it is ultra high molecular weight polyethylene so it's uh, an extremized variation of, it, of an HDP fundamentally okay uh, to, to keep it as simple as possible uh, it's fundamentally a plastic yarn okay uh, with an extremely high molecular weight so it's a uh, uh, a chain of, of um, it's a molecular chain that is very, very, very long. And so they already behave as fibers, uh, as right. single okay. molecules. So when you pack them up and align them one to the other, they become a very, very, very strong uh, yarn for okay. making fabrics. A bit, a bit like Kevlar. Fundamentally, it's been replacing uh, Kevlar, which is okay. a registered trademark, I would um, <laughs> remind yes. you. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's been replacing that in several applications, actually, because the yarn itself is not something I design, obviously, right. but it, there's a business making it. And sure. um, we got that yarn and got a business using it in place of polyester to make um, this elastic uh, 800 Newton fabric that's under two millimeters thick. Right. And that was the, the main passage to obtain the outer layer of, of, the, of the gloves in terms of materials. Mm -hmm. Then we got the same yarn and got it uh, formed with carbon fiber um, sorry, uh, woven with carbon fiber to obtain um, another kind of fabric, which then becomes part of this kutum material. So it's right. shipped to, over to either Hungary or, Le or Latvia, where the production plants are, and there they form it and work it um, with the viscoelastic material I chose and fine-tuned for that to make the, the scutum protective material. Right. And then everything gets, sh gets shipped over either to my local warehouse in Italy or to Pakistan, where there's a business uh, that is making the stitch work for me. And it's not a, a human-known business. Uh, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of people guessing that it was a rather known business that, uh, no, it, it's... I know the business you mean. I've, I've worked with them myself. Because <laughs> the quality of work is nowhere near. Sorry. Um, and so um, there they do the stitch work that produces the outer part of the glove mm -hmm. and leave some pockets in it so that protectors can be placed in and then the material is shipped back to Italy where we also receive the protectors either from the guys making the scutum or another business that is making the plastic parts and the fingertips and the knuckle plates and whatever. And then everything is put together here in Italy with the inner linings uh, and uh, everything is placed in its pockets and then boxed. And then there's uh, an external warehouse that does this for me. And uh, at that point, when I receive an order, I transmit it over to the warehouse and then they prepare the shipment and they ship it over. So we fundamentally work with a lot of, of gear in stock at the warehouse 
And okay. whenever we, we receive orders, we put them in a queue for being assembled depending uh, on the color uh, of, the, of the gloves, on the model of the... Uh, okay, of so they're the assembled gloves. to order. Um, yeah, for kind of. yes, kind okay. of, because you have to use the, the, the right, um, the right uh, outer with the right color, right size, and right. the right um, penetration protection level, and you have to put it together with the right inner, with the right measurements, and in case they ask for uh, optionals, we have to add them to the order, right. pack it up. So you, you could make your life a lot simpler by just having like three sizes and no no color options. Definitely. <laughs> but you chose and, not to. And also no model options because we offer 800 and 350. Okay. So wow. yeah, definitely. Uh, okay. I would, but at the same time, um, um, I say this actually with a little bit of, of, uh, of bitterness, I would say. Uh, I decided to have six sizes because everyone was freaking out about um, covering the extremes because yeah. nobody in HEMA makes gloves for the elephant and the mouse, they say. Yeah. And then I must say that it didn't really find uh, the support to, to justify that. It's been two years. I haven't been even paying back the molds for the excess size. Dude, I hear you. I, I, I produce these workbooks, which are available in right-handed and left-handed versions so that when you open it up, the, the page for notes is on the correct side for writing comfortably if you're right-handed or writing comfortably if you're left-handed, right? And that costs me layout fees and yeah. setup costs and everything like that. And no, my left-handed students have not bought enough of those bloody things to to pay for their setup costs. But here's the thing. To my mind, it's worth doing it anyway because it's a statement of position. Right. Absolutely. It is my it is my position that people with very small hands or people who happen to be left handed or people who happen to be very large or whatever else, they should be catered for. And yes, I'd rather if a bunch of left handers went out and bought my workbook so I could actually sort of financially justify it. But I justify it through it's the right thing to do rather than it's the right business move. Absolutely. And that's so. why I still make the excess size. Yeah. But okay. I, I must say that for excess, excess size to have three colors and two models. Uh, that's, that's quite impressive. I, I've been selling nearly 2,000 pairs of gloves by now, almost. Okay. And I think I sold 12, 15 total excess size. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, but, I okay. keep I keep doing those, but but for the hang, uh, on, but hang on a second, for those twelve or fifteen people, that might have been a game changing. Yes, I can keep doing this, yeah. and one of those people may end up being the best instructor in historical martial arts the world has ever seen. So absolutely, who knows? Who knows? Absolutely, um, it's just venting out being bummed about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 expensive to do the right thing yeah, quite often. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Okay. So, um, so you've got custom sort of self-designed materials and the, the overall design and all these plastic parts and everything is put together and da, 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 all these parts mm -hmm. are shipped all over the world and whatever. Um, but how much do the gloves actually cost? 
they are they are the 350 model is 240 euros plus uh, VAT depending on where yeah. you are living and the 800 model is uh, 270 plus VAT sorry it's 230 270 okay that is not a lot that's about what I would pay for an off the peg steel gauntlet yeah um, I think it's a rather sensible price point uh, it's very sensible I'm just surprised you can do it at that price given uh, given how much work went into it and how much setup there is and how these materials need to get produced that, for you and you know that's the reason why we can't really do um, custom because yeah. we need to buy those the parts in thousands I mean I've been ordering fingertips I think I ordered like 10,000 of them right. the other day so they end up lasting six months to a year. Uh, I've been ordering materials in the sizes of tens of hundreds of square meters for fabric. Right. So uh, that's the only way you can have real industrial size and not cottage industry, but industrial size makers work and, for and you. And at that yeah, point, and, prices and, drop. Yeah. So you get massive economies of scale. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like um, like printing books. Like the first book costs you a fortune to print. Printing one book is, I don't know, some hundreds of euros. Printing a thousand books is a few. And the revolution of print on demand changed all of that. But even now, like like when Penguin orders 10,000 copies of a paperback, they are paying probably somewhere around a dollar a copy to get it yeah. printed. Uh, it changes a bit, but whereas the same book being printed print on demand with kdp is probably three or four times that yeah yeah that, um, that's the real difference i mean the, the the print on demand is still probably comparable to the cottage industry kind yeah. of pricing if you step up into real industry size uh prices go really down and obviously you have to coordinate a lot of material and a lot of shipping but you can really manage prices to, to, to be acceptable, I would say. So did the crowdfunding campaign actually pay for all of this? Uh, no. Okay. I, I, I can unfortunately bluntly say no. Uh, even though it was probably the biggest uh, crowdfunding campaign in HEMA yet, I think. At its time, it surely was. I don't know if anyone has gone What, what, what did that. you raise? What did you uh, raise? It, it was uh, something above uh, 30,000 plus another 20 on the second round of pre-sales uh, like okay. six months later. Yeah, it, it may have been the biggest at the time. My Audacia campaign raised about 53. And I okay. know that these days um, some of Michael Chidester's uh, HEMA bookshelf campaigns have raised over 100. So basically what's happened is the community has woken up to crowdfunding. And yeah. like 10, 10 years ago... Uh, like with my Audacia campaign, like 50 grand was an amazing campaign. Um, I think if you if you did it again, you'd probably get twice as much. Possibly, but I, I think, I, I'd like to think at the very least that the fact that uh, crowdfunded HEMA material has actually started to come out uh, for real yep. uh, sort of made a difference. Because I remember 2017... 2018, when people were sort of scared of getting into crowdfunding uh, campaigns for HEMA because Strange. they had been burned a bit, uh, at least ah, okay. for gear. 
for, for gear, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I, I did my first campaign in about 2011, I think. Um, and it raised like a thousand euros and that was quite good. <laughs> and then my second one, I think was one of my books and that did pretty well. It raised about 12. But the thing is, it is so much easier to produce a book than it is to produce a gauntlet. <laughs> cause, cause there are these, there are these factories that will happily, they'll take your print PDFs, which are quite easy to and cheap to produce and they will convert them into a printed book for a few dollars a piece. Yeah. It is, it is industrialized to a point that this glove making thing just isn't. So, so yeah, it's good to see that the community is kind of getting used to the idea. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and I think now, you know, if you wanted to, you've got enough of a track record of actually producing the thing mm-hmm. that you'd probably, you know, if you had an idea for, I don't know, a similar, I don't know, gorget or chest protector or something yeah, like um, that, you, you could probably raise a lot of money for it. I mean, probably yes. But at the same time, I'm not sure if I would run uh, another crowdfunding campaign okay. um, because uh, it puts, uh, at least in, in my field, it puts uh, an extreme level of pressure on, uh, on you compared to yeah. just oh, selling yeah. the item. Because <laughs> Hell if, yes. if you don't need the money beforehand, don't do a campaign yeah uh, yeah definitely and at this point with the business running and going rather well uh i hope i won't need uh money beforehand to launch jackets and and stuff like that because it's it's really um on on, on our side it's very um hard to be disappointing anyone if you run long on something or whatever yeah and on the other side, if there's no other way to get something out and you really think that that thing has to go out, a crowdfunding campaign is the only solution you have. Back then, it really was the only way to do that, to justify yeah. uh, getting into yeah, I mean, that. And with books, um, I did a few books on crowdfunding. Um, I crowdfunded because I needed to know that people would actually buy them. Yeah. Um, and I also, I needed to figure out how to actually produce these books and who I needed to hire and how much it was going to cost, all that sort of thing. Um, and these days, I don't bother with crowdfunding for books because it's just not worth the stress. The, the last time I crowdfunded something, it was mm-hmm. when I was producing the audiobook version of George Silver's Paradoxes of Defense, mm-hmm. where I got an actor to read it in modern English. And I also got um, like the most famous actor doing uh, original pronunciation Shakespeare, uh, a guy called Ben Crystal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got him to do it in original 16th century pronunciation. And it's so geeky. It's so niche. And, and honestly, Ben is really, well, he's very, very good and he charges accordingly. Right. So there's like, yeah. there is no way I can just, just put out that kind of money just in the hopes that people might buy this. Yeah. So I asked you the crowdfunding. Yeah. I need to know that people, enough people would yeah. buy it. And, they did and I got the product out there and it made back all of its costs. It has still not paid me for the time I put into it, but I don't care because I just wanted, I wanted to produce this thing for my own sort of artistic satisfaction. And I got to do that because the crowdfunding supporters bought it enough that yes, but yeah, it's, it's not for me, That wasn't a money-making proposition, but that was a, I want to do this. I can't afford to do it. Hopefully, if other people want me to do it, then they'll pay for it. And as long as it pays yeah. for itself, I don't mind. 
Yeah, that fundamentally was the original idea behind the gloves, and then it turned into that, that's that's the two weeks of stop I took. Uh, yeah. I had to 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 repurpose the project and yeah. decide whether or not it had to change from that to this. I'm amazed you managed to do it in two weeks. Well, uh, I, I'm a person that uh, if they if I have to take a decision, uh, I wait it and and take it. I. I, I never need uh, a, a long time to decide something because if I am undecided, undecided on that, I just won't do it. Yeah. Yeah, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Exactly. So yeah. I took a couple of days off to just think about it and mm -hmm. approach it with a fresh mind. And then at the end of the week, I was already decided. Then I took another week to, to ponder some maths checking out how to do that, not if to do that. Right. And then went on doing it. Wow. Okay. Uh, now, I think we should probably um, restart the conversation that began at the Panoplia um, when you came up to me and asked me something about the three volts of Starblaze. Oh, sorry, the three volts of the sword in Fiorentina. Yeah. Italia. Okay. So um, I, the thing that sort of really struck me is the way you approached it. It was, it was like, it was like, it was like, it was like you were expecting me to shout at you. Well, I wasn't expecting you to shout at me also because we had already uh, talked a bit over the internet like five years ago, I think. And so I already knew you were not going to shout at me, but at the same time, um, I didn't want to seem um, attacking because okay. I can sometimes be rather decided in my uh, <laughs> way to approach people and and sometimes people feel yeah. attacked uh, because of that. Okay. So I, I went with uh, absolutely padded uh, um, talking and okay. yeah, I, I approached you basically as soon as I saw you, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was, like, it was like before things really started on the first yeah. day. Yeah, there was um, like the first workshop running. No, the introductory workshop, workshop running. Yeah. And as I recall, you, you said something along the lines of, um, would it be okay for us for me to ask you about the three turns of the sword yeah. at some point during the weekend? And my response was something along the lines of, well, if we don't do it now, we'll never do it. And then we yeah. carried on talking for the next two hours. <laughs> yeah, it was even... Um, even blunter than that, because you replied, why not now? Right. Because if we come to, to, to decide we'll do it later, then we won't do it. <laughs> so it was even even blunter than that. I was like <laughs> okay. expecting you to say, yeah, maybe later. <laughs> why not now? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, so um, I think it's probably a good idea if mm -hmm. we provide the listener with the source text. So, we, so yeah. we're going to talk about the three turns of the sword. Um, do you want to read the Italian? And I'll read the my English translation. Yeah, I would say I, that. Your, your Italian accent is a little bit better than mine, I will admit. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> well, your English accent is probably a little bit better than mine, so we are even. Uh, so, I would say that we could... Um, I could read a part, and then you read its translation more sure. than reading the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. And then, That's a good idea. Again. Okay, so, um, 
This is from Folio 22R in the Getty Manuscript for those yeah, who, exactly. who are following along in the book. Uh, so uh, it's right above the, the drawings of the, of the Posta di Donna, the first drawings of it, and it says, uh, Noi siamo due guardie, una si fatta che l'altra, e una è contraria dell'altra. E ciascuna okay. altra guardia in l'arte, una simile dell'altra, si è contrario, salvo le guardie che stanno in punta, dove posta longa e breve e mezza porta di ferro che punta per punta la più lunga fa offesa innanzi. Ok, so my translation of that is, we are two guards, one made like the other and one is counter to the other. And with every other guard in the art, one like the other is the counter, except for the guards that stand with the point and then square editorial brackets in the center. In other words, you're threatening with the point. Thus, long guard and short and middle iron door that thrust against thrust, the longer will strike first. And then it goes on saying, E ciò che può fare una, può fare l'altra. E ciascuna guardia può fare volta stabile e mezza volta. Volta stabile sia che stando fermo può giocare dinanzi e di dredo da una parte. Mezza volta sia quando uno fa un passo dinanzi o in dredo, e così può giocare dall'altra parte dinanzi di dredo. Tutta volta sia quando uno va intorno a un pe con l'altro pe. L'uno staga fermo e l'altro lo circondi. Ok. <clears throat> um, so, it continues. And thus what one can do, the other can do. And every guard can do the stable turn and the half turn. The stable turn is when, standing still, you can play in front and behind on one side. The half turn is when one makes a pass forwards or backwards, and thus can play on the other side, in front and behind. The whole turn is when one goes around one foot with the other foot, the one staying still and the other going around. And then we have the last part of the paragraph, where it goes, E perso digo che la spada sia tre movimenti, due volta stabile, mezza volta e tutta volta. E queste guardie sono chiamate l'una e l'altra posta di donna. Ancora sono quattro cose in l'arte, due passare, tornare, accrescere e discrescere. Okay, so it continues. And so I say that the sword also has three movements. Thus, stable turn, half turn, and full turn. And these guards are called, one and the other, the woman's guard. Also, there are four things in the art. Thus, pass, return, advance, and retreat. Okay, yeah. so let me just give some background. Um, pretty much everyone I know in the Anglosphere who is interpreting Fiore would look at this and say, the volta stable, stable turn, mezza volta, half turn, and tutta volta, full turn, are footwork actions. And at the end of describing these footwork actions, Fiore says, and so I would also say the sword has three movements, but then doesn't define them, right? And that was sort of my unexamined position until you came and examined it with a fucking pickaxe. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. what, what, what do you think is going on? So uh, I would um, rather entirely disagree with this uh, interpretation, as you know. Sure. And uh, as I told you back then, uh, the reason why I approached you uh, so suddenly at the very beginning of the event when I saw you were not busy at that moment was because uh, I've been um, using this interpretation of this passage for like 10 years now and whenever teaching it, uh, the 
you were like the the final boss of that because everyone uh, I was teaching that to they would say but Guy Windsor says this <laughs> and, uh, okay okay so you have a different position and when you were teaching your position people would come along and say but you're disagreeing with Guy yeah definitely right okay Fair. <laughs> and uh, and so I seized the occasion since we had sort of started this discussion five years ago and then it never went anywhere because we just stopped discussing for okay. some reason. Uh, I, okay, I have to confess, I don't actually remember that at all. And yeah, I don't, dis- I, I don't disagree. I don't disbelieve you. It's just I don't recall it. Um, and I think maybe the fact that, that was probably 2019, and then we had 2020, had probably had something to do with it. Yeah, that, there's a good chance that actually that is what uh, stopped it because at the end of 2019 I got pneumonia and uh, I was out for a bit. So uh, and then everyone got pneumonia, <laughs> special <laughs> pneumonia. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what do you think is going on? In other words, what is a Volta Stable? What is a Mezza Volta? What is a Tuda Volta? So um, if we go to the passage, okay, and I've been yep. using my my English translation. Okay. Um, the, this paragraph is starting more or less telling us that um, he's showing us two guards, which are both uh, guard of the lady, yeah, yeah. and uh, he's showing them though to be um, one as a very loaded uh, version of it with the arms high above and the, the, the point of the sword fundamentally facing down. So a very loaded version, ready to, to, to throw a great blow. And the other one is uh, a, a rather more um, ready guard with the sword on the shoulder, the arms low, the point high, and fundamentally appearing to be ready to, to cross yeah, the and line the somewhere, weight, somehow. The, yeah, the, um, in the what you're calling the more ready version, the weight is on the front foot, and in the loaded version, the weight is on the back foot. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not using the, the the feet here as the difference between the two as much as um, the, the the body position. But yeah, the the loaded one is also on the back foot, okay. and uh, the 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 unloaded one is also on the front foot fundamentally. Yeah. Um, so um, and the passage more or less goes like. Uh, we are two guards, we look like each one like the other one, and we are one against the other, we are one the counter of the other. Yeah. And every other guard similar one to the other are counters with exceptions, and he basically goes on with um, a first introductory part of the paragraph where, in my opinion, he's telling you that when the opponent presents a threat... Uh, you have to answer it, and if you don't have another answer at hand, we could say the same guard is an answer. Yeah. So one yeah. is the counter of the other if they are similar, and then he makes the exception if they are on the point. Don't do that because you'll skewer each other. Yeah. And then he goes on, basically out of nowhere, telling us, and there's the Voltas. Yeah. <laughs> and he starts off by saying each guard can do stable turn or I I don't use the, the turn word actually, I call them voltas. So I would say well, that let's, each okay. Let's let's just use Volta Stable and Meta Volta and just avoid the translation because we're gonna get okay. into nuances of what it could mean okay. later. 
Um, so, so just use the Italian for now. It's fine. Okay. So uh, he tells you that each guard can do volta stabile and mm -hmm. mezza volta. Yeah. Full stop. Which deliberately excludes Excludes uh, to the volta. volta. Yeah. Okay. So not every guard can do a to the volta. Apparently. Exactly. That's my take. And then he tells you uh, volta stabile is that without moving, one can play back and forth on one side. Yeah. This is uh, rather different from the way you translate it. Okay. Stando fermo mm -hmm. means standing still. Yes, but yeah. uh, at the same time, um, it is also um, without moving. So, yeah. why Standing literally, so. yeah, but um, motionless, motionless yeah, yeah. is not exactly uh, a translation of stai fermo to me because um, I think that the, the overall meaning can be also yeah, uh, passed by uh, standing still. Uh, I translate it as without moving because I think it is referring to uh, um, moving on the line, moving yourself in the fight and not of moving anything in your body. Yeah, the reason I would say standing still is because mm -hmm. it doesn't preclude moving your arms. It just doesn't want you to move your feet. Yeah, but I don't think that stable turn prevents you from moving your feet. Why not? Uh, because um, that is an explanation of uh, what a stable turn is. But then when it, the paragraph goes on, it moves on to um, showing uh, a cresser and the cresser. Okay. Yeah. So if I am passing... I am moving in the fight. If I am doing an aggressor, I have not really been moving. Mm. I have been sort of shifting. Okay. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Mm -hmm. Hang on a second. Before before we go on to that, we need to. Yeah, okay. that's why the way I would the, the way I would translate aggressor, mm -hmm. or the way I would explain aggressor, mm -hmm. is a step forward where you step your front foot forward. Sometimes you bring up the back foot behind it. Sometimes you'll do something else with your back foot. But basically, the front foot moves forward. Yeah. And a discressory is when you move one foot or the other back. Uh, not any motion that brings back one of the feet is a decressor. No, 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 sure. But like, if you're standing, so if you're standing still, right, mm -hmm. and you take a step backwards, so mm -hmm. you're left foot forward and you take a step backwards, and at the end of that step, you're still left foot forwards. That, to my mind, is a discressory. I'll try to, to, to explain this with, with an example. Uh, if you think about the way he describes um, posta di dente di cinghiale, so the boar's mm -hmm. tooth, okay, yep. he's telling you uh, that from there you can thrust without moving and then come back. Yep. Or you can thrust with an... Please, <laughs> go check in the book. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just going to... I'm just grabbing my translation yeah. from medieval manuscript to modern practice, the longsword techniques of Fiori Delibery, because it is my translation of this stuff and it's got the transcription with it. So I can I can go immediately to find Tentation um, Gyaro because I do know exactly what you mean, but uh -huh. it's this is one of it's those conversations page... where the exact phrasing is really yeah. important. It's okay. page 24, Rector. 
Okay. Yeah. And it's page 170 from Medieval Manuscript. So, yeah. Okay. So it makes great thrusts and it returns with a fendente. Da, 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 and yeah. And it, uh, in quella zitardi punto, so in that throwing of the thrust, yeah. accresce lo pecche dinanzi, it increases or accresceres mm-hmm. the foot that is in front immediately and returns with a fendente to yeah. the head and to the arms, right? Yeah. And returns in her guard. Yeah, so in this in this occasion, he's showing us, in my opinion, but mm, this is getting messy though. uh, But this occasion shows us a case where he tells you uh, that without moving, you can throw that thrust and come back with a fendente, or with an accessor, and then hang hang, hang on a second. second. Mm. Where where does he say without moving? So, uh, okay, uh, so non si muove di passo. Exactly. And you don't make a pass. So, in step. the way yeah. uh, I see this, and the, in that occasion, when he is just increasing a foot and then coming back with it, he hasn't been moving in terms of having moved, of passing, so of having changed his position. Um, his, well, yeah. Because if okay. you if you pass from one side to the other, the guard tends to change. Yeah. But if you just step forwards or backwards, yeah. the guard you, remains the same. You don't really need to change the guard. Okay. You so, can do, but you don't have to. Yeah. Exactly. So in this specific reading, I think that an aggressor or an aggressor do not constitute moving. Okay. Okay. Hang on. In terms so, of uh, not not, I don't think they break the idea of being of standing still the way you put it so that's why you don't use standing still i agree that but let, let, let oh. me get to it i yeah, agree okay. with your concern i'm mm. not saying that's a sure thing but i am saying and it doesn't really uh matter for my interpretation of the voltas but okay. i change it that tiny bit of translation because in the overall reading of this paragraph, in my opinion, it fits better. But the meaning between standing still and not moving isn't really that far apart. Okay. Okay. The, I would. I will not be changing my translation okay. on that. Not least because standoff fermo is a much more direct translation. Yeah, it is. It right. Is. Because sta- standoff is standing and fermo is. Yeah, stand. yeah. It is so, an absolutely literal yeah. translation. I- I'm yeah. not contesting okay. that. Okay. Um, so. All right. So, so what is a stable turn? So in... he tells you that a stable turn is that without moving or standing still, however you prefer, one can play back and forth on one side. Yeah. So as an any kind of action that can bring you playing back and forth on one side without taking a passing step is a stable turn. Okay. So that's... Or that, a stable, yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. that thrust, he shows you in the Boerstuth moving fundamentally from the Boerstuth to the long guard. Yeah. And then that returning, coming back to the Boerstuth on the same side playing forward and backwards or back and forth on the same okay. side is a stable, a stable turn. So I, a volta stabile. Okay. Yeah, one, yeah, a volta I, I keep using stable turn because I've been rereading your uh, translation yeah, yeah, before. I, <laughs> I got it in my ears. Okay. So, um, and this is 
something that I always say to people that are not uh, that have not been studying with me before. When you read Fiore, Fiore is not Johannes Lichtenauer. Not every single word means a strictly specific action with that exact angle, that exact motion, that exact footwork. It's concept. I don't think it does. I don't think it does in Lichtenauer either. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the, the German tradition enough, but I would say that at least the German tradition has a lot more categorizing than Fiore's Fendente, which is basically any blow going one direction. Yeah, <laughs> without differences yeah. between... You You would at least get an Oberhau and a Zornhau. Okay, that there's more categorization in Lichtenauer's work okay. than in Fiore's. Uh, that, okay. That's the joke. Uh, so, I would say that by this passage, any action that, um, better say that, uh, a stable turn identifies any action that doesn't make you change the side of your body where you are fighting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. that's, as he says, on one side. So, yes, okay. the sword does not go from one side to the other. I would agree with that completely. Yeah. So I, I yeah. don't think it's a footwork motion that lets you fight on your front and on your back or whatever, but I think that it's any action that is generated by footwork that does not invert the side of your body. Okay, so I think this might be a good place mm -hmm. to have a look at Voltare to turn mm -hmm. or to... Because yeah. the thing is, you've got Girare, which is very much like to turn around. Yeah. Right. And you've got tornare, which is basically to return. Yeah. Right. And you've got voltare, which, okay, I actually had this discussion with my Italian teacher when I was in Italy uh -huh. over Christmas. And of course, I got a couple of Italian lessons. And of course, we'd had this conversation <laughs> in December. So I was like, okay, tell me about voltare. And in his head, voltare absolutely implies a turning motion. Right. But you I have. I think that for a human. Yeah. It requires a turning motion. Okay. Because uh, the, 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 the straight-out difference between Voltare and Girare, to me, mm -hmm. is that Girare identifies the action of turning your body, while Voltare identifies the action of turning, we could say, your uh, direction of sight, so that you giri lo sguardo, you turn your sight, mm -hmm. But you don't volti lo sguardo. You okay. volti yourself. Okay, so voltare already brings the meaning of direction of... Um, uh, yeah, I would say of direction. Okay, okay so let's, let's um, simplify this slightly. Mm -hmm. How would you... Because obviously your English is really good. Um, much better than my Italian. How would you translate volta... This is a English. terrible question. It's a great it, question and it's a necessary question. And you knew it was coming, so there we go. <laughs> because uh, not every single word has a straight out translation. Well, sure. Okay. I mean, like, 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 Volta is turn in the same way that it's my turn in a card game. That would be a Volta. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to mean only that. So, you know, you, you can say that. There are multiple possible translations, but for the sake of the stable Volta, mm -hmm. 
what would be, in your mind, the proper, most useful um, translation of the term? Probably if I was to choose a single English word, uh, I would use motion over term. Motion. Yeah. Okay. So stable motion, a half motion, and move. A, but, maybe move more than motion. No, motion. Motion is better. Because um, mm. if you think about if you think about Vijani, mm. um, I don't really Skana, study Vijani, so I'm oh, not prepared. Definitely, for that. definitely read, definitely read Vijani, mm. because he is talking about tempo as basically a movement from guard to guard. Yeah. Right. And you know, a, a whole tempo is when you go from a guard like when it's held up above your head with the point back and you swing it all the way down so the point is close to the ground. That is a whole tempo. And a half tempo is when it stops in the middle, right? So he's actually discussing motions of the sword and analyzing them or whatever. So, I mean, I would... Okay, I think if I was if I was a translator you would hire to get the English translation of Fiore to express your interpretation correctly, my feeling would be go with motion. So a stable motion is when you don't change sides. You might step forwards or backwards, but you are um, you're 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 doing a motion. But because your one foot isn't passing the other, you are more stable. The foot is leave is off the ground for a much shorter period of time. You know, to, there's to, much less opportunity to be thrown. To to a degree, okay. I could probably consider in, in terms of uh, purely shades of meaning, mm -hmm. uh, swing. As to be Swing. another, as to be another close call for a translation, okay. because a swinging motion has it's a lot yeah. of, of what to me a volta is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a not really a straight motion, no. but it's not really a rounding motion okay. necessarily. But if I'm if I'm in dentishingaro and I thrust you in the face with posta longa, the motion I'm that I'm the sword is is a swinging of my sword arm forwards. Absolutely. Okay. Stable okay. swing. So I like I, it. I Actually, think all right. that swing like is better okay. than motion probably. Okay. So Those let's carry other meanings. So Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Translation is always is always yeah. a a compromise, right? There's yeah. you know. Um okay. So the stable swing. Okay, so... God, that, that's going to take a long time to get used to, but okay. Okay, so if we <laughs> want to call that the stable swing, okay. and that's the reason why I'm still using Volta, because it's terrifying yeah, yeah, it's to find a, a, another word saves, for that. <laughs> I, I, honestly, whatever the physical execution turns out to be, when I'm teaching it in class, I'll be using the Italian term because it cuts out all this problem. Like like yeah. we use Mandrillo Fendente, we don't say forehand descending yeah. blow. Right. Yeah. For the same reason. It just eliminates the problem of coming up with um, a selection of definitions yeah. from I, the, the, the Venn diagram. I like you know being I mean. able to find words in, in the person's languages because a, a lot of people uh, consider the original terms to be a lot of jargon uselessly thrown at them um, right. for no reason. I know many people that see it that way. Uh, to be blasted with like 10 Italian terms out of 15 words. And okay, so I that's... need to find an in-between solution. But for this one, I couldn't find one until okay. a minute ago where swing isn't really bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, interestingly, on the, on the getting people to use Italian terms in an Anglophone class, what I do is I get them to do the motions 
And then I give them a name for it, but I don't emphasize, oh, you have to learn this, this name. It's just they oh, pick yeah, it up yeah, slowly yeah. over time. It's like, it, it can, it can turn into a kind of a word salad if you're not careful. And then, and then, then, you know, when they, when they've done something cool, like striking from posta de donna with a mandarin offendente through posta longa into a posta de dente gingara and the whole thing was done with a paso, they're like, oh my God, that's a lot of Italian. But <laughs> it's just, you just swing the sword from your shoulder down to the ground while you're stepping forward. I mean, duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it, everyone has to find their their um, their best balance, and I try to translate the words that are safest to translate, okay. and I avoid translating the words that could cause a mess. Okay. So, um, so see, when I'm when I'm publishing a translation, mm-hmm. I have to translate every word, right? Mm-hmm. I can footnote words if I need to but that if you leave to my mind if you leave Italian words untranslated when you're selling somebody a translation you are you are being unfair to the completely anglophonic purchaser uh, I I would be doing the opposite meaning that I would probably be leaving everything untranslated when coming to specific technical terms and then footnote the translation Right. Okay. If I it was that, me, because I've I've seen translations produced that way, and I've seen an awful lot of very upset people who thought they were buying a translation, yeah. and what they got was a mixture of English and Italian, and they were not happy at all. So yeah, I can understand uh, that. That's one yeah. of the reasons why you can't find uh, an English theory by me around. Uh, right. Fair <laughs> enough. So, um, so this is the 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 basis of my. Uh, reading of this passage, the stable turn is this. And so what's a half turn or right. a half volta, mezza volta? Let's go back. Half to swing. Mezza volta. Half, half swing. swing. Mezza volta. Okay. So. Uh, it's when one makes a turn forwards or backwards and thus can play on yeah, the other sorry, side. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I lost the, the passage on the computer. Just a second. Um, here we are. Okay. And so to me, the translation is uh, mezza volta is when one takes a step forward or backwards and this way they can play back and forth on the other side. Okay. So my take on this is that any action that is generated by a footwork that brings your body to the other side and so you playing to the other side is a mezza volta. Yeah, so I agree. if I was... Uh, swinging uh, a fendente from the right to the left with a full step, with a passing step of my right leg, yeah. I would be, it would be one of the thousands of possible mezza volta actions. I would agree, 100%. Okay, so a mezza volta is any action that allows you to go doing volta stabile actions on the other side, fundamentally. Oh, it's it's it's, uh, it's an action that brings your sword from one side of the body to the other with a pass. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Okay. More than saying the sword, I would I wouldn't say the sword to the other side of your body because there's a couple um, occasions in which this wouldn't be true, uh, namely with some of the central guards and some of the. Um, and the, the guard of lady or the tired window where you actually have, you could have the sword on the other side entirely because it's on the back of your head. 
So I don't really like saying the sword on the other side. I would say the the range of motion of your sword to the other side of your body. Okay, if I'm if I'm holding the sword on my right shoulder uh-huh. and I turn my body towards you, so my left shoulder is towards you, and the sword is actually pointing towards you from behind my head. Uh-huh. Mechanically, that is chambered on the right side of my body. Yeah, yeah, that's what right. I'm saying. So, so you're chambered on one side, and you release that chamber, Absolutely. and you swing Absolutely. through, and and you, yes, you go to the other Th- side. That's yeah. what I'm saying. The range of motion of your sword is on the other yeah. side more than the sword itself. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because otherwise, sw- swapping from a, a slightly loaded guard of the lady. Just turning your body and getting into a very loaded one would be a mezza volta because it no, would go on the no, other no, side because, of the body. <laughs> because it requires a pass. It only, it's only okay, a mezza volta okay. if it has a pass. Okay, good, good. Okay, yeah, but so. anyways, I, I, I prefer to, to, to expose it as, yeah, the chambering of the blow is also good, uh, a good way to put it. Uh, I would say the, the, the range of motion of the weapon. Uh, because as an example, if you are standing uh, in the short guard, okay, mm-hmm. in posto breve, yeah. and you are left foot forward, you step back, you get that, to be right That's foot. not a mezza volta, because you're not I playing was, on the other side. I, it would absolutely be a mezza volta to me, uh, because geez. it allows you to play on the other side. That action to me would absolutely be a mezza volta, because... You would have an action that, with a passing step, is bringing you to be play to be able to play f- uh, forward and backwards or uh, back and forth on the other side because it's Maybe. not it's not telling you uh, it is mezza volta si è quando uno fa un passo in avanti o in dredo e così può giocare dell'altra parte so. And thus you can, yeah. And so you can play, and this way you can play. Yeah. And so it is a passing step that allows you to go playing on the other side of the body. Okay, maybe. So to, to my uh, reading of that, that is a mezza volta. And okay. So, Annie, really any action that involves a passing step that brings you to be a- that makes you able to play on the other side is a mezza volta. Um, yeah, I agree, generally speaking. And uh, then we have fundamentally covered every single possible action because every action that is generated by footwork that doesn't change the side of your body is a, is a volta stabile. Every action generated by footwork that does change the side of your body is a mezza volta and yeah. what's the need for the tutta volta? That's a good question. And Fiore tells us uh, tutta volta is any action, this is a paraphrasing more than translating, okay? I yep. am going by memory at this moment. It tells you that it's any action that involves one foot standing still and the other encircling it. Around it, so, yeah. Yeah, and going around it, so... Huh? Incidentally, it is probably that one sentence where he's just talking about the feet that gives us the impression that yeah. Volta Stavle and Mezza Volta are fundamentally footwork actions. Yeah, so uh, let's take an example. Okay, um, we, are get, we are getting close, okay, and 
I am with my left foot forward and I am on your right side of the body. I've just been throwing a reverse offendente, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I want to uh, put my sword at your throat from behind you. So what am I doing? I am keeping my right foot still and I am throwing my left foot behind you and getting at your throat. So this is not a volta stabile. This is not a mezza volta. Okay. I would say that this is a tutta volta. So he's trying to... The, the description the description of what your he, body does absolutely is a two-to-volta. He's just trying to categorize those few uh, rare, rare and I would say that mostly generated by by close combat, by close play, by wrestling, grappling, and yep. stuff like this, that wouldn't fit any of the other two descriptions because he's trying to lay out the system. And so he's telling you, hey man, look, it can sometimes happen that you have to turn around your foot to do something and okay. that would be a full turn uh, at okay. volta. Mm-hmm. I agree and the way I would think of it is exactly like you know you're doing an arm bar or something and you sweep one leg mm-hmm. around to kind of get yeah. that that motion into to crank the arm it's a uh, like in terms of what the feet are doing this is completely unexceptional mm-hmm. um, the the question is okay with this one it's all about the feet. With the other two, oh, it is, no, no, it, no, no, it no. is not all no, about uh, the feet. It's not about the so, feet, so hang on, hang on, but sorry, it's the actions generated let, let, by that. Let, but let me, let me, let me finish, mm-hmm. right? Because Please. there are, um, if you if you strike a medulla fendente, so your left mm-hmm. foot forward chambered on the right, and you swing a forehand yeah. descending blow as a right hand, so it's forehand. <clears throat> And you're turning with it and you're really turning your hips into it to hit really hard. You are one foot is staying still and the other one is turning around it. Yeah. But that is still a meta volta because you're only going Definitely. halfway. Definitely. Right? Because I mm-hmm. So so what about that motion? I mean he doesn't specify forwards or backwards, like of the motion of the foot. Now I will tend to the two devolters that I tend to do when I think of them as a two devolter are almost invariably backwards so that my right foot is going clockwise or my left foot is going anti-clockwise right so but that's not specified in the text the direction is not specified and neither is the duration of the turn how far around the circle you get right so but but um we should probably highlight something the the kind of the conclusion that we're heading towards is that this sentence, and so I say that the sword also has three movements that are stable turn, half turn, and full turn. You would say that is a summary of the turns that have come before. Yeah. So all of this is referring to sword actions, and yeah. they are not specifically footwork actions. Yeah, because right? there's no also there. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and so I say. Uh, he yeah, says because now going to memory, you say then so I say that also the sword but there's no also there no. actually um, and you've been saying that by, by memory probably as a as, as a mistake uh, going by memory oh hang on, hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on wait a second wait a second let me check I have a I have a horrible suspicion that also snuck in where it don't fucking belong one second <laughs> let me just go to the actual mm-hmm. published translation uh, it's right at the beginning. Equestrian discussion. Okay. Uh, yeah. Hang on. Let me just let me just read out the Italian. E perso digo che la spada si ha tre movimenti. 
And so I say that the sword, <laughs> Siha, Tremovamedic, has three turns. The, the also shouldn't be there. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I need to do a second edition of my book. Thanks for one fucking word. Thank you, Dario. Very helpful. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Right. So yes, you're absolutely right. That is a, that is a classic example of interpretation getting in the way of translation. Now, I have Tom Leone's published translation here, Flowers of Battle, Volume 1, um, which is an absolutely fucking belter of a book. It's fantastic. Every Fiori scholar should have a copy, not least because the introduction is really thorough and interesting. Um, and if I remember rightly, I think, dear Tom, yeah, Tom has... The sword also has three movements, Volta, Stabla, Meta, Volta, Tuta, Volta. So Tom puts an also in there too. So it's not just me. Well, glad to help. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. So let, let me just say categorically, that also does not belong. And if anyone is listening along with my From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice book open in front of them, take a pen and strike out the also. It's something that I'll do when um, I'm in the process of doing the rest of the manuscript treating it the same way. So a volume for wrestling that's coming out in a couple of weeks, um, a volume on the dagger, a volume, the, the sword volume's already done, then armor, uh, armored combat on foot, and then the mounted combat. So when I've done all of that, there'll be editing of all of the translations, and then I'll produce this gigantic mega finished, thank fuck I never have to do that again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> definitive translation, the world according to Guy. Um, so, okay, and the also will not be there in when, when we get these these new editions out. So, all right. So, and so I say that the sword has three movements. Yeah. Without the also, that does imply that what he's been talking about all along is sword motions. Yeah. Yeah. The, Fuck you, Dario. Art of the Fuck sword. you. Have you <laughs> any idea how many videos I have to reshoot? Any <laughs> idea? Uh, I'm, okay. I am right. I'm undecided whether this is uh, giving me some sign of guilty pleasure or <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you should be enjoying yourself though you really should I am so um, All right. let, just to close out on the on right. the previous topic um, yeah. I would say that in extremely streamlined and simple modern terms yeah. we could say that a volta stabile is any action uh, and generated by no stepping or advancing or retreating minor steps. Uh, a mezza volta is any action generated by a full step. A tutta volta is any action generated by a pivoting step. Okay. I think that's a, a, a decent sum up in modern terms, probably. Yeah, I would, okay. I think that's a very clear statement of your position and I am coming swiftly around to it, but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> All right, <laughs> so... So, um, all right. Now, he then says, and these guards are called one and the other, the woman's guard. Right? Posta di donna. Okay. I think that's yeah. unremarkable. We can just take that as red. Yeah. Right. He is basically telling you, you can sort of uh, balance forward and backward. That those are stable turns. The others are volta stabile. Yeah. So, so that shift. You, okay. Yeah. For, for those who are not Fiori scholars and who have not been following my Fiori stuff, um, if I'm forward weighted and I, I turn my body so that my weight goes from my front foot to my back foot, right? I would call that the Volta Stabile. And I would think of it as a footwork action, although the feet aren't actually moving. Well, they're, they're turning in place, but like you're stubbing out cigarettes, but they're not actually, they're not actually moving. Um, so would, you would also call that a stable turn, would you? 
I would consider that to be one of the hundreds of possible stable turns from that okay. position. Yeah. Fine. All right. That helps. So that's that's but, less that's less awful I, than it might have been. But I wouldn't really focus that on the foot motion. Uh, I know okay. many people that have that opinion and that think that the stable the, the stable turn they call it at the point is the motion of the feet turning one direction or, or the other. I I would definitely not consider that to be the uh, core part of it being a, a, a volta stabile. No, it's the in front and behind that's the core part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And here comes the one of the most interesting parts of this paragraph, at least to me, which yeah. is the ending of it. Yeah. Ancora because, sono quattro cose in l'arte, yeah. Also, yeah. there are four things in the art. Out of nowhere, Fiore comes up with footwork. Yeah. Why? Because he's been telling you about the voltas and the voltas are generated by this footwork. Okay. So if he doesn't talk to you about the footwork here, the structure of his manual would be failing because the structure is iterative. Anytime you will be needing something from here on, he's going to tell you. And so yeah. here he's been preparing the sword into hands. And I wouldn't say that as much as he's preparing the weapons of war section of his manual. Yeah. And uh, for that, since they are relevant to the side of your body, because a long sword functions in the same way a polax functions in yeah. terms of body side, yeah. uh, you need to start understanding the turns, the voltas, and once I've been telling you about the voltas, I need to show you, or at least to, to mention in this case, because it probably thought those were rather basic actions you wouldn't forget, mm -hmm. just like with the blows, he doesn't really explain them. Uh, you need to remember that the five principles that, 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 that regulate this art are the voltas and the actions that produce them. Okay. And so it goes on telling you, you have passing, you have recovering, you have increasing, you have decreasing. Okay. Now, a pass is any time one foot passes the other forwards or backwards. Mm -hmm. I agree. Now, tornare, the one place in the manuscript where I find a tornare like clearly used, and it's definitely not passing backwards, is where you're defending with the dagger against the sword thrust. Mm -hmm. And what happens is you're in a, sort of, a rear-weighted guard with your right foot forward, and as the thrust comes towards you, you pull your right foot back to meet your left foot, make parry with the dagger, and then you pass in with the left foot. So the feet do pass each other eventually, but the thing that you're doing with the front foot is you're just bringing it back to the back foot. And that is in the text. It's a tornare. Uh, give me again the page, sorry. Uh, sure. Um, let me... Uh, I think it's easiest to find in the actual... Because I want sorry. to give it a check, because uh, among the... Yeah, sure. Among yeah. my quotes for Tornare, I didn't use that one because um, I have other two. 19 recto. So where the sword and the dagger begin to play. Um, da -da 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 -da. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, lo pedrito cum rebater in dredo lufaro tonare. The right foot okay. with the parry backwards, I make it tonare. Turn. 99. So it's the first one you said, the first yeah. play. First paragraph, which begins, qui comienza spada e daga a zugare. Here begin the sword and the dagger to play. Mm, I, I think um, I'm bringing the wrong one, just a second. We may be using different pagination standards. It's between the dagger section and the sword in one hand. So right after the ninth yeah. march of the dagger ends. That that's first exactly play. where I am. Yep. Yeah, that's first par the... Fir first paragraph. Oh, the very first one, not the... Yeah, the, yeah. So the, the one... The oh, sorry, I was reading the, the one after that. Okay, so the right... Okay. Right, because when, when you do that in practice, you have to um you i mean you can't pass it all the way back behind you or you end up out of measure and you can't get in to do the the murderous stab that comes afterwards right mm -hmm. so to my mind it's absolutely it's absolutely clearly not a standard pass backwards it is a withdrawing of the front foot and you get this lovely turn and in fact because i have it on video mm -hmm. um i will um, just yell out the, and I'll put a link in the show notes to this as well. Uh, where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Da, 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 da. Okay. So this is from page 45 of From Medieval Magic to Modern Practice. And I've, the video is linked on page 50. So, no, sorry. I want a different one. That was the cut. Yeah, here we go. So on page 47, and it's, if you think dagger versus sword, that's DVS. So the whole link is guywindsor.net forward slash DVS thrust. So dagger versus sword thrust, DVS thrust. So if people type that into their phones, they'll take them to a video of me doing the action so you can see that kind of turning turning thing. And I'll put that link in the show notes so people can just go to the show notes and find it there too. I'll check it out. Yeah. Um, I, well, I, you can see me, so I'll just, I'll just show you what I mean. So there, there I, I've got the dagger here. And yeah. I do that because that takes me out of reach of the thrust, mm -hmm. and I'm close enough to get in to get my left hand on the sword wrist, as you see. So that that to me is is a tonari. That's how you do the tonari, or well, that is a an example of a tonari. Okay. Um. I have to to check this one out because okay. Uh, while it makes sense, uh, there's a problem with the tonari which is uh, that Fury uses that word a lot yeah. without uh, ever providing an indication whether or not that use is the one he intends for the action uh, quoted here. So as okay. an example, I have a rather different reading of Tornare, okay. which comes mainly from page 24 recto and page 26 recto. 24 recto, yeah. And 26 recto, yep, yeah, okay. So 24 recto is again the Borstuth uh, description yeah. where he tells yeah. you that with that throwing of a thrust, you immediately increase the front foot, come back with the fendente for the head and for the arms, and yeah. recover to your guard. So consider that I translate uh, that tornare as recover and not as returning. Well, see, I would say return. Re in fencing terms, they're, they're pretty damn similar. So, e torna con lo fendente zo per i, so I, I, 
I I return with a fendente, uh, for example, to the arms. I use recover simply because uh, it allows me to discriminate between the use of tornare as not this action and the use of tornare as this action. So I would use return when I don't think he is referring to this action and recover when I think he is referring to the action in this paragraph. So in this case, okay. I would use recover instead of return when talking about the foot. So hang on. And so we're talking about... So we're talking about like recovering from a lunge, like in, in modern yeah, fencing, because recovering from the lunge is you have lunged and you return to your guard and that and is this, literally called the recovery. This is what we okay. just saw fundamentally, throw a yeah. press with an increase of the front foot and recover and, it. And recover with a cut. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And he uses it in the same way in page 26, Recto. Yeah, third paragraph. Goes when some goes when someone goes for your leg, yeah. increase the front foot, then recover it back and throw a finite. So in this case It's a forwards action. Oh yes. Yeah. Because so it, it comes is, after a decrease. Yeah, yeah. So um quando uno te tra per la gamba, discrese lo pede dinanzi. Mm -hmm. So when one throws for your leg yeah. or attacks at your leg. I use go um, for your leg, but yeah, goes for discrese your leg. So withdraw the foot that mm -hmm. is in front. Um, uh, oh God, I've got the wrong glasses on for this. Let me let me check my transcription <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah, because I'm just reading it from the um, from the correct sized oh, facsimile I produced. This um, oh not this one. So because I'm reading it from the facsimile of uh, by Michael Chalister, the yeah, which is, one. I, I have that. I have that. But but the one that I produced is oh. like one one tenth of the price so you can literally ah. throw it in a fencing bag or whatever so yeah yeah this one is fancy, michael, of course. yeah yeah michael <laughs> takes the top end and makes these beautiful beautiful books yeah. which i have a stack of over there um and yeah i do i do the uh cheap chuck it in your fencing bag end of the market which is great um okay so okay so oh tu lo torna in dreddo right so or you can pass it back. Or, yeah, I use recover because it tells you when someone goes for your leg, decrease the front foot, then recover it back and throw a finente. No, it's not then, it's or. Uh, Look carefully. Sorry? O tu lo torna in dredo. So, discrese lo peque dinanzi. So, discrese, the, the front uh -huh. foot. Or tu lo torna in dredo. Or you return it backwards. Look carefully. It's, it's not, it's not, eh. It's O. Oh. So in this case, I would say it absolutely is a pass back. It's not a return to your previous position. It's an alternative to doing a discretory. I'm checking it out. Sure. I have a magnifying glass here, but I can't lend it to you because you're in Italy. So, yeah, I'm, I understand what you're saying. O tu lo torna in credo. There's a full stop in between. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so as I read it. Okay. Um, okay. I, I see what you're meaning. I, yeah. I, I've been using that full st that full stop uh, differently than you did, and now that I, I understand what you're saying, so you either decrease the front foot or you return it back and throw the fendente. I get what you are saying. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so you have an alternative. You can either just pull the front foot back or you can pass it all the way back to avoid it being hit and smack him in the head. And I'm paying you back for that also. <laughs> yeah, 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 it makes sense. Good, 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 good. <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, yeah, this is the, the, the problem with the Tornari, as I was saying, that Curie is using that word absolutely indiscriminately. Well, it's, uh, okay, but this is, this is a key thing about dealing with any of these, these manuscripts. Most of the time, what we interpret as technical terms are not. I they're just would. they're just general they're just like general ordinary Italian used to describe ordinary Italian things like smacking people in the face. I, right? I mean there are there are I, mean, I would like, generally agree with this, but in this specific case he is intentionally identifying tornare as a technical term. He is literally naming it as yeah, yeah, one in, of in, the five things the four, of the, the four, art. The four things of the art. Yeah, I would, I would say yeah. the five because it tells you then there's four more, so I am including the Voltas. So in which case, there are seven. There, there, no, there's, there are seven because there's three Voltas. Yeah, I would call, I would say the Voltas and oh. the footwork actions, mm. but yeah, whatever. <laughs> One of Seven's a better number. All right, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, all right. Now, here's a thought. And so I say that the sword has three movements, that stable turn, half turn, and full turn. Okay, movimenti is movements. That's totally uncontroversial, right? Yeah. And it's even a, it's even a, a, a true friend in terms of translation because movement, movimenti, it's, you know, it's, it's their cognate, right? So <clears throat> these, the stable movement, the half movement and the full movement, if you like, or motion or swing. All right. And the ancora also too as well. Whether that's being like really specific or whether that's being more sort of pleonastic, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, he uses Ancora a lot, like most Italians do. Yeah, um, but his use of Ancora, it tends to um, not to mean uh, again, which it means in also. Italian, Ancora would mean again. Uh, and I translate that as there are four more things in the art. Okay. I say also there are four things in the yeah. art. I don't see any more there. Huh? Yeah, so you're, you're getting Ancora to be more. Yeah, because um, <clears throat> I, as an Italian, I would translate it uh, as again, mm -hmm. but in terms of uh, numbers, again is four times. And in yeah. terms of numbers, I would translate it as more. So ancora, okay. um, ancora sono quattro cose in l'arte. Uh, I would I would translate that ancora as meaning more rather in, than in, in addition to another time, but another yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's also. Yeah. Like, we've had this. Now we also have this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so I think the pass is unremarkable. The return is not simply a pass backwards, but it can be used as a pass backwards. We see that in the in the um, that's uh, seventh play of the second march of the Zogalago across the middle of the swords, where he's slipping the leg, mm -hmm. right? But also it's that motion where you're basically swinging the front foot back towards the back foot and then exchanging your feet, so you get that tornare. Um, How would you like uh, 
take back the foot, taking the foot back from the from the harm's way. I would say returning it. I mean, return is is a per- thing. Is return in English has lots of shades of meaning, <clears throat> like many happy returns of the day. Right? What the hell does that mean? Well, it means happy birthday. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, so, just give, using return, I think is a is a is a useful translation of it because it can mean all sorts of things and it is used in several different ways in the text and there's no reason to suppose that tornare used on page 26 is different to the tornare used on page 19. Yeah I probably um, have a, 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 a smaller um, knowledge of the various shades of meaning of that word so right. uh, to me return had a rather simple meaning uh, but again Given the, 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 the point you have just given to me that um, about that return play, uh, I would say I'll probably go back to using a return for every instance, though that's less helpful in terms of interpretation for the people you are teaching to, it's also less prone to mistakes. Right. And the, there's a limit to how helpful we can be if it yeah. means interfering with the meaning of the text. Yeah, agreed, agreed. In this case, um, I'll, I'll go back to return. Okay. So, and accresorate and discresorate, I mean, it means increase and decrease, right? I would translate that as advance and retreat. Uh, I, I, I would translate it if I was to be using, if I was to use advance and retreat, I would always say advance the foot and retreat the foot, though. So okay, but it's not in the text. It actually. Okay. No. no okay. It's it's in the it's no no it's it's in the text all over the place. Like yeah. In the in the play of the exchange of thrust, you know, acrescilopeke denansi. Yeah. Um, increase the foot that is in front. So he tells you which foot to do. Yeah. Right. But it's um. In, in the sentence that we're talking about, it's just accressory et discressory. Oh, yeah, in this case, yeah, 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 yeah if, I, I, if I was to translate the single word yeah. as accressor, uh, it's fine to, 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 to translate it as uh, advance, absolutely, yeah. uh, okay. as long as every time you use it, you refer to the foot, because it's not the person advancing, but it's the foot being advanced. Yeah, and when you discressory the foot, um, in when you're avoiding the cut to the leg, yeah, your body will move back a little bit, but it's not a step back. You're just pulling okay. the front foot back out of the way yeah, and then striking. Balancing. He also tells you put it back. Uh, not in the play of the long sword, but he tells you. Uh, no, yeah, it's actually in the in the other one. No, no, you're right. Okay. <laughs> no, no, it's in the. That makes uh, a nice change. <laughs> yeah, it's in the other play. It's in okay. the description of the of the Borstov. Now, we should probably also bring up mm-hmm. the location of this passage. And I, I just love the fact that we've been talking about this one paragraph for over an hour. It's like, this, this is this is pure heaven, really. This okay. time. <laughs> yeah. Because it's it was, already on top of like five or six hours. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But I, should, I, would, okay. so, I would bring so, up one thing. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so you would translate those as uh, advancing and retreating. I, I'm fine with that. Uh, I, I actually do like that. Um, it's more readable than increase and decrease in yeah. modern English, absolutely. Uh, but what action 
do those represent? Okay, if we talk about the front foot, for which we have clear textual evidence, mm -hmm. right? If I do, for example, the exchange of thrusts, I step the front foot out of the way, or I increase or advance the front foot out of the way. So my front foot is going to move, if it's my left foot, I'll move my left foot forward and to the left, and then I'll pass across with my back foot. So, because he says, um, I mean, let me just dig up the actual text, um, just to make sure that we are on the same page. Um, here we go. Questions are you going to have to excuse both my um, Italian pronunciation and the fact that I will struggle to read these because I've got the wrong glasses on. Okay. No worries. Questo sogo si chiama scambiare punta. This play is called the exchange of thrust, and it is done in this way. Quando uno te trae una punta, when somebody attacks you with a thrust, subito accresce lo tuo pe che dinanzi fuori la strada. Immediately advance your foot that is in front out of the way. E cum l'altro pe passa alla traversa ancora fuori di strada. And with the other foot, pass across also out of the way. Okay? So, so basically what's happening there is my front foot is moving, right, in this step with this not passing, and then my back foot is passing. Yeah. So the accressory does not require you to make that correcting action of the back foot. Like if you just do a simple fencing advance, front foot goes forward, back foot goes forward the same amount, right? In this case, it's just the front foot moving. And in, um, in the avoidance of the cut to the leg on the previous page, um, 26R, he says, discrese lo peque dinanzi. Mm -hmm. So withdraw or decrease or retreat the front foot back. Yeah. Right? So, so you're, you're, you're bringing that foot back. That doesn't require any motion of the other foot. Right? So it, I would also say that if I'm standing there left foot forward and I want to just take a step back and I step back with my back foot and then recover my guard with the front foot, I would call that also a discretionary because there isn't a sensible so, thing to call it. This right? is my problem with accressor and decressor. Okay. So uh, there's three logics we could follow. And mm -hmm. the more it makes sense in terms of fencing, the least it remains consistent with the book. Okay. So straight out of the book, it's always the front foot moving yep. forward and backwards. Yep. We don't Agreed. have any proof of the back foot being increased or decreased. Correct. I cannot accept uh, this reading because it makes absolutely no sense that a whole fencing system doesn't in any way consider the possibility of decreasing the back foot. Well, of course it does. Because when he when he's specifying the front foot, he only needs to specify the front point. foot if it can also be the back foot. But because he chooses yeah. to specify it, it must obviously be either yeah. foot. This is exactly my point. Yeah. So we don't have any hard evidence of the back foot being able to increase or decrease. But at the same time, we have the specification of which foot is increasing and right. decreasing, even though it's casually. And also, also, and also, 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 mm -hmm. it's simply absurd. Um, that, you know, you can't watch two people fence for any length of time without seeing at least a couple of discressories in there. Um, it happens is, all the time. This is absolutely my point. That's why I was right. saying I cannot accept any interpretation saying that the cressor at the very least doesn't apply to the back foot. Of course it does. Okay. 
Yeah, no, I'm not saying you say that. I'm, I'm yeah, just yeah. taking the levels. Okay, so level okay. one yeah, is yeah. straight out of the book. We cannot demonstrate the existence of a crescent and the crescent of the back foot, but Fair. level two, it's impossible not to to consider that. Yeah. And here comes level three, which is disaster, because um, I'll need to recheck the mm -hmm. uh, the tornado thing. Because mm -hmm. any interpretation we take of the tornare comes from one, two passages overall in the whole yeah. book. So I, I have two readings for mine in the same way you have two for yours. So it's nearly impossible to hard proof. Uh, I, I'm saying mine and yours, speaking of the ones we presented, mm -hmm. not necessarily the ones will be... Um, defending because I think yours is rather good and uh, now that I have read that I have read the passage that way uh, this gives me even more difficulties because <laughs> if we want to read the tornare the way I was doing it before and I have always been putting my hands forward on that and saying I can in no way say that I think this is correct but I think this is a possibility Okay, yeah. if returning is the action of pulling back uh, a foot that has been advanced or retreated, so if you do an aggressor or a decressor, and the yeah. tornado is the action of bringing it back, uh, we fundamentally have the basics of, um, uh, how to call that in English, of modern sport fencing footwork right sure. into Fiora's book. Why not? But yeah, but that would really open um, that would really open up the possibility to consider Fiore standing in the short guard and doing advancing steps without turning at all from foot yeah. back foot, from foot back foot, from foot back foot, and uh, of course this is the way I read it. Okay, yeah, a lot of people do not. I I understand that you agree with this. Okay, I don't think I don't think that is a complete description of all the footwork you do with Fiore because of course you're passing a lot. But yeah. basically everything everything in sport fencing except the flesh and the long lunge, I would say is entirely pre present in every fencing system ever produced. I, I right? can't just, say every fencing system because I haven't studied them all, but I am sure they are all in Fiore. Okay, <laughs> I've never come across a martial art that didn't have those actions. <laughs> Right. Okay. And um, yeah. Okay. The flesh is the flesh is basically it, it a bastardized. Is very specific. Yes. Um, and the lunge, we have it. Well, we have it from Denti Shingaro when you advance the front foot and you thrust somebody in the face. Yeah, I mean, it's a short lunge. It's a short lunge. It's just okay. because of the mechanics of the weapon and the, the conditions of the fight and all these other things, it doesn't make sense to do a full small sword style lunge or a modern fencing lunge, right? But it's certainly it's certainly a lunge like action is yeah. just a short one yeah it's a lunge it's right. a short one but it's a lunge i agree and in in this uh, framework mm -hmm. uh the meaning of the tornado action uh, is in my opinion extremely important because if if tornado doesn't mean recovering uh, a foot that's been increased or decreased we either have to suppose that action doesn't have a name at all and Fiore didn't talk about it or that it is not considered into the system. 
No, okay, right. I'm just going to stand up and I'm going to show you those two recoveries, mm. right? And why I would be perfectly comfortable calling them recoveries in English. Okay. And this isn't maybe great for the listeners because they can't see, but I'll try and explain what I'm doing as I do it. All right. So the defense against the, the dagger thrust, sorry, against the sword thrust, holding a dagger, I'm holding a pencil, right? I have chosen to put my right foot forward and my weight on my left foot. And when the thrust comes towards me, I recover my front foot out of danger and I pass in. No problem. And when we have come to some crossing of the sword, somehow or other, I've parried or I've attacked and been parried or whatever, and my opponent cuts for my leg, I recover my front foot. Now, if it's a short recovery, it may just be a discressor, eh? And if it's a full recovery to or past my front, my back foot, I'd call it a tornare. I think the difference between discressor and tornare there is simply how far the foot travels. And I think Fiore would not lose any sleep about which way you described it, because I, if, I think if he really cared, he would define it really carefully. That's possible, but I, I, I would say that he always, um, uh, how do you say that? Um, if it talks about something, he is always trying to give it a repeatable um, interpretation, a repeatable meaning. Okay, but... We've already established that Volta Stabile, mm-hmm. in your interpretation, mm-hmm. can be a thousand different things, so long as the sword isn't going from one side to the other. Yeah, if but... Staying on the same side and going forwards and backwards is Volta Stabile. But it has right? a very strict definition. Yeah. But How would you define a tornare? I would define a tornare as the recovery of the front foot. And so there's an overlap between discretion and tornare, and I'm quite comfortable with that. So one is a definition of intention, let me say, needing to remove the foot from danger. No, I would say one of them involves a turn of the hips and the other one doesn't in practice. A tornare, there's going to be, because of the way the foot is moving, you're going to have to move your hips to make space for the foot, right? Whereas the discressory and the accressory can be done with your hips basically staying the same. And how do you differentiate a tornare from a passare indietro? from a passare backwards? Uh, because if I'm passing all the way backwards, right, so from a left foot forward guard position into a right foot forward guard position, but doing it with a pass back of my left foot, right, that is a, if I do it to get out of the way of something, I'd say that's a tornare. And I don't have a problem with that. Because again, these... Okay, a useful definition of art from this period is natural human actions ordered into a system so they can be studied and taught. Yeah. And the thing about natural actions is they are infinite and varied. And what we're doing is we're applying classifications after the fact, right? And as with these things, there is going to be some slippage. Now, if one, if the foot does not pass the other foot, it's not a pass, I would say, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm passing forward with my right foot, my right foot is going to go past my left foot. Uh, okay. I wouldn't define a passing step that way. It's a walking step. Yeah, but uh, given the, the, the strength of the structure of your system, I would define a passing step as one that mm, makes the sword go on the other side of the body. No, because that's, that that's a metavolta. But not all passes are metavolters. 
If you do, a, if I'm standing no, a pot for longer, okay. No, if I'm doing, if, if, okay. If so, he said you know, a metavolta is when with a pass forwards or backwards. Yeah, but no pass is a metavolta. A metavolta is a neck is an action that involves a pass. Fine. Okay. Okay. But if I'm if I have my sword in posta longer and I just walk towards you, those are passing steps that I'm using, but they are not metavoltas. I would to, say. To me, they are because Fine. if I if I retreat my sword after that step. I'll be retreating it on the other side of my body compared to before it. So no, it's because it's staying, in, it's staying in the middle of the body the whole way. It's not, it's it's not going from one side there, to the other. Again, Metavolta doesn't say you move the sword to the other side of the body, but it means that it tells you that when you do a Metavolta, you become able to play back and forth on the other side. And if I, th- if I am in the long guard with my left foot forward, Mm-hmm. If I want to go to the guard of the lady, I have to go to the guard of the lady on the right if I don't step. You th- kind of yes, except actually no. How many times in a beginner's class have you seen beginners accidentally go into posture on them with the wrong leg forward and get their legs all switched up and whatever? And that's terrible and it's not Fiori. And we all know that yeah. if you chamber it on the right, you should have your left foot forward. And so you do a nice passing step to get to the other side. Metaphor, it's it. lovely. But... But just look at the Bolognese, right? They are forever chambering on the wrong bloody side and having the sword over on their right side, low down with the right foot forward instead of the left foot forward as God intended. I mean, it's, it's, it's important, I think, that we don't become so narrow in our definitions, right? Um, so, for instance, take, take Frontale as an example, okay? The yeah. guard of Frontale, as it's shown, as I use it, as I interpret it, I have my left foot forward, it can be done either side, but the way it's illustrated in the text, I have my left foot forward and the sword is closing my high inside line. So my sword is way over to my left, right? The only sensible action I can take from there is a reversal fendente, not a mandrillo fendente. It is therefore chambered on my left side, even though I am left foot forward. And it's there in the book, I would say. Mm, I wouldn't. Oh! <laughs> okay, so let's say I'm in Tudaporta di Faro and you swing a sword at my head and I beat it aside, and the moment of contact of the weapons, I am basically taking my sword from Tutaporte di Ferro into Frontale. That is the, the motion that creates the parry is that transition from Tutaporte di Ferro into Frontale. Mm-hmm. For that parry to work, it has to cross the center line of my body or your sword is going to hit me, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Frontale in that instance is going past the center line of my body and therefore over to my left. I do not have to take a step when I do that. I am still left foot forwards. From there, I can do all sorts of things, but the simplest, most straightforward, most obvious thing to do is from this position where the sword is on my left and the point is high, if I just drop it onto your head or over your arms or whatever, that is a reversal fendente. It's a backhand blow from above. But is that anywhere in the book? Sure. Absolutely. I wrote an entire article on it called um, One Play, One Drill, Many Questions. I'm afraid I have to read it, but... It's uh, in the book I sent you. Did you not read the entire 250 pages of it before we met? Sir, I, I am not. appalled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I honestly can't conjure it up in my mind where he's Okay, uh, I'll show you. That. Okay. Think of the, um, think of the crossings of the sword uh, in the Togolargo, uh-huh. which are uh, either crossed at the point or cross at the middle of the swords. In either case, well, right now the book is open to 25 hours, so I'll do the one where I cross at the middle of the swords. I'm here, 
yeah? Which means my left foot is forward, I am crossing, your sword is on my left, which means I need to have my sword on my left, otherwise your sword is in my face. I am closing the line. That is fencing obvious, right? Yeah. So, that is frontale. Yeah. Right? And I can strike from there, a reverse of fendente. No problem. And I can do that okay. with a step or without a step. Yeah, I have no problem with this. So I probably didn't right. understand what you were saying before at this point. Right, okay. Fair enough. Um, the, these things are best done sword in hand, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Um, right. So but my point is you there have an example of you being left foot forward, but the sword is chambered to strike on the left, from the left. So Yeah, and no. <laughs> okay. But, but okay. Here's, here's the thing. We... I think we have to get comfortable with the idea that these categorizations of actions are fuzzy at the edges. But right? Let me. Let they, me just, they overlap considerably. Let me just uh, ask a question on this. Okay, so sure. the yeah, action you've been showing in parrying uh, in, in Frontale, okay, from, yeah. from Tutta Porta di Ferro. Is that a stable turn or is that uh, is that a mezza volta or a tutta volta? Uh, a mezza volta or a volta stabile? Well, it doesn't have a pass, mm -hmm. so it has to be a volta stabile. Okay, and then the according to your definitions of the term. Yeah. yeah, and the following attack is that a volta stabile or a mezza volta? It would have to be a volta stabile because there's no pass. Okay. Although I can do it with a pass, which would make it a mezza volta. Okay, right. so this completely holds to what I was saying before that every um, passare, every full step is going to, to, to generate a mezza volta and no mezza volta will happen without a full step. To which you say, no, not every single uh, full step is going to be a mezza volta. Yeah. And then you came up saying, this action has no full step and so right. it's not a mezza volta, and I'm saying, That's yes. Right. So this doesn't uh, in any way affect the statement that every full step is going to bring to a mezza volta. Yeah, we're talking about slightly different things. Right, and also don't forget, we have an example here of, of what you would call a, a volta stabile. Mm -hmm. Actually, the sword is going from chambered on the right to chambered on the left to back to chambered on the right. It's a volta stabile out of frontale and a volta stabile back with the but... reversal fendente. Right. Where it, and and I am I am I have not moved my feet, agreed, and I am but, still kind of changing sides. Agreed, but the chambering is your definition, while mine is the range of motion of the sword, and the range of motion of my sword is still on the right side of my body because no, it's because been moving across the right side, and it's going to be moving again across the right side of my body. Sure. Yeah. I haven't so, been changing the range of motion okay. of my body to the left side of my body. Right. Okay. And what's happening is what's happening is the sword is is going past your nose and therefore it's going over towards the left. Okay? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's playing mechanically speaking on the other side. Right? And my action, my strike from there is much weaker than it would be if I was chambered differently. Yeah. Right. But it's still a four foot steel bar smacking you in the head quite hard. It'll do the job. It's just not, it's not a complete metaphor. But whenever you have any kind of classification of fencing actions, you always have 
this problem of definition because the way way yeah. people actually move don't always fit into yeah. those nice clean neat definitions there's surely a margin of that yeah. but i feel that the margin we are having on the tornado is just too large and uh, <laughs> okay well i mean what. compared to everything else probably in the manual that is absolutely uh, too wide of a margin uh, leaving basically either interpretation as sensible and I think it's not um, it's not how things usually go with Fiore which usually okay. lets you say yeah that's it okay but I would say in this case I think you're worrying too much but I think also I think also we should probably leave Tornare for now because I do have other questions and we've just spent an hour and a half on yep. question five <laughs> Please. All right. So, so let's 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 um let's let, let's wrap that that yeah. Volta Stable, Meta Volta, Tuta Volta, and the four things up in a nice neat little bow. Yeah. And um, I'm going to skip my next question out of respect for um your time because otherwise we are going to be here all day. <laughs> uh, about the, about the Paul Stable and Instable. And here's the thing. If listeners are going, oh, fuck, no, Dario, please tell us all about your pulsativa, Stable and Instable interpretation, then what they can do is they can email me, guy at guywindsor.com, and say, for fuck's sake, get Dario back to talk about that, and I will do so, right? Okay. But we're going <laughs> to skip it for now, um, just so that my poor assistant who's going to transcribe this won't actually murder me for making a four-hour-long episode. All right. <laughs> This is a question I ask everyone, and I think I know what your answer is going to be to this one, which is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? This is actually an extremely different, difficult sorry, question. Um, first, because I have quite a few ideas. And second, because of that yet part. Okay. Uh, because uh, you can have a thousand ideas, and you cannot act on a thousand things in your life. Sure. Uh, so it, it requires me to both decide which is the best one and which one is the best one that I will one day act onto. Okay. Um, I think that probably um, that's head protection. Okay. If we want to keep it to... To stuff I would do as talk at the very least. So as uh, talking about gear, if okay. we are talking about fencing, uh, probably uh, working around the, the the tournament scene with uh, a rule set that I do like more than people relentlessly bashing each other because after blows put things back even. In general. Okay. Making it so that if both got hit, it's not even, it's both dead. Dead intended as losing something from that exchange compared to just having gone even and we can restart. Okay, so you've got basically two things there. One is developing better head protection. Yeah. Um, my my top favorite thing for longsword, any kind of striking weapon um is the Terry Tyndall style mask, which yeah. is just fabulous. Um, you yes. really like heavy stuff. No, okay, <laughs> it's it's basic physics. The I weight agree. is part of is the weight is part of the protection, right? Um, and if if you don't have any mass in your helmet, 
And the thing is, I am not averse to training to be fit enough to use slightly heavier equipment. My, my longsword fencing is not slow because I'm wearing steel gauntlets, and my fencing isn't slow because I'm wearing a mask that weighs more than one of those stupid fencing masks, right? Yeah, I, but at the same time, if you had like 10 kilograms of stuff less on you, you'd have anyways more stamina, more speed and whatever. Okay, but all, of, but, all of my, but all of my equipment combined when I'm doing longsword free fencing is less than 10 kilos. Well, I right. mean, considering the, the mask is about most... two and a half, the gauntlets are maybe one each, and my plastron is maybe two. Okay, try entering a tournament with that equipment. I well, I would not enter a tournament that doesn't let me wear steel gauntlets because it's just stupid and dangerous and unsafe. Yeah, but try entering a tournament where you are not required to wear a jacket, a gorget, uh, like protection, protection, uh, elbows. I mean, um, if we are looking at Himagir, mm -hmm. and if we are looking at what the majority of people purchase their gear for, which is the full gear is usually for yeah. competitions because sure. they they will train with less than that probably at their club and etc. But when they are going all out, they are going all out in full gear. Yeah, and full gear implies at this very moment three, four, five, seven kilograms of jackets to two and a half, three kilograms of masks if we, are, if we are looking at stuff with a lot of overlays and the gorget, the arm protectors, the elbow protectors, uh, plastron mm -hmm. and leg protections, knee protections, we can go on as much as we want. And in the end, if for every piece of gear the solution is going steel and heavy, uh, when you get to full gear, you start holding around 15 kilograms, probably, at the very least. Because people in HEMA tournaments uh, at this moment are holding around 9, 10 without steel. Okay, but, but, okay, but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Okay, to my mind, there's armored combat, where you wear proper steel armor. Mm -hmm. And then there is fencing intended to simulate unarmored combat, where you wear stuff that is not armor, right? Yeah. Like fencing masks, like the Terry Tindall mask. That's not a helmet. That is not armor. Um, my steel gauntlets are armor. They're the only thing that would track from one, from one mm -hmm. situation to the other. Although if I was free fencing with poleaxes, I'd probably want clamshells because yeah. it can be better protection. Um, but I don't, I, I'm not suggesting that we go full steel for body protection or gorgets or any of that sort of stuff. I'm perfectly happy using like inline skater, um, skating pads for my elbows and knees. And I use, a leather chest protector thing that is more than adequate for free fencing with longsword. Um, and I have a, a leather gorget I made myself, which actually has a Kevlar lining in it, so it's pretty damn um, puncture-proof. Um, I, I don't see the need to add more to that. Well, again, you are still already holding around at least Eight or nine. a kilo and a half of gloves more and a kilo and a half of mask more yeah, than so what? someone else. What, why is that a problem? Well, for some people it is. Also, you are uh, looking at it from the perspective uh, of someone used to doing that and with the physical shape to do that. But as an example, mm -hmm. the more you go down in size, the, the, the more the ratio between weight and ability to carry it goes down. So, like, uh, the lighter the fencer is, the smaller and the lighter the fencer is, 
the more that's a problem. The the okay. least uh, the least good is someone's cardio. The more that's a problem. It's not a new thing in sports to be looking sure. for performance. I mean, people look at 20 grams in running shoes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So I I see I. I'm not disputing the value in producing equipment that is similarly protective, but is lighter, right? That's, that has an obvious advantage because we're trying to simulate unarmored fencing. But the amount of weight we're talking about, I would say that if that is a problem for the fencer, that is a problem of their fitness and conditioning. It's not a problem of the equipment. Yeah, but we are not right? only and talking about weight, but bulk in general. I mean, a Tindall mask is also rather large compared so to... To it's a fencing a mask, no. Target. It's, it, yeah. it's oh. not compared to compared to one of these fencing masks covered in those those like head those, those padded extra protective bits and the bits at the back. I don't. I wouldn't say my Tyndall mask is any any. It's bigger probably than, one or two centimeters bigger in any direction. Okay, okay, but the sort of people to whom that matters are very high level competitors who are competing for seriously valuable prizes that yeah. doesn't describe anybody in historical martial arts today I, I wouldn't agree i mean uh if you were right in this i'd be out of business because i am literally making a product that is uh, designed to be as light and as un unfeelable as possible sure. and it yeah. costs twice the alternatives in some in some cases and it goes it goes to the point that in some areas it's probably the most widespread glove at the moment sure. so i wouldn't okay. say that people don't want that no i'm not saying they don't want it i no, no 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 i'm not saying they don't want it i'm saying the sort of people to whom a, a master is a centimeter wider thus giving a slightly larger target area is a significant problem are either insane or deluded or they are extremely high-level competitors, but we don't have competitors at that level uh, because I, we don't have prizes at that level. No one's getting Olympic gold medals uh, and a career in advertising out of out of winning a historical martial arts tournament. I think there's a fault in your reasoning. Okay. Because there often is. Because you are looking at it from the global perspective. Like, yeah. uh, if you are not going to compete for the Olympics, why aren't you? Um, trying that hard and my answer is a lot of people would just like to win their damn local tournament sure or the any event in which they are or maybe make it out of the pools everyone has different goals and sure uh, okay all I, of I those don't... are people that are going to want those two kilos less that's true that's true but I don't think it will make any difference for them I think it will. I do. Okay. In which, in which case, in which case, act on your idea and produce adequate head protection that actually works, that is lighter than my Tyndall mask. And if it gives me the same visibility and it gives me the same head protection, I will happily switch. I'll try to make you. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so, so get on and act on that one. All right. So your other one, your other thing you, you were thinking about was the rules of tournaments. Yeah. So the thing is, I mean, pretty much every possible rule set has by now been tried out by somebody somewhere, mm. right? And the rules definitely affect the game, like from they start do. to finish completely. Okay, there's no, um, there's no disputing that. Change the rules, you change the game every time. 
right? So what specifically would you change other than getting rid of the afterglow? What would you change about? So I, I have been testing that actually in a couple events uh, with minimal differences between one and the other. And that's actually also an article by myself out from a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, if not four. And I think what should change um, in the way the human community handles competitions is that right now we are uh, treating those as one versus one events. So based okay. on the outcome of the single fight, and I think that's the failure of, of the system because as long as you make HEMA competitions, uh, the result of what happens between you and me, every time I can catch up to what you just did, I can reset the situation, which is the problem with afterblows. And we can go on with thousands of sub-rules like afterblows, doubles, uh, numbers of doubles that make you go out of the tournament. And they are yeah, all okay. arbitrary. Okay. Yeah. The way I handle that is arranging that by pools so that okay. if you make a pool of people and like just three is already enough, but it's easier with five or four people per pool. But let's say three people, okay? Uh, you, I, and uh, A, okay? So yeah. we fight. You and I fight. You hit me four times. I hit you five times. In a normal rule set, I've won. Yeah. There's also A. A fights you, hits you twice, gets hit once. Mm -hmm. He has won. Yeah. I fight A. I hit you. I hit him, sorry, uh, a hundred times. And yeah. he hits me a hundred and one times. You in, in a won. sensible world, I should have won. Yeah. Because I've been hit the least. You have. Yeah. Because I score pools by the person that has been suffering the least points, which is different from scoring fights by either the winner or the loser or whatever. But the yeah. person taking the least hits, the least points, I would say, Across in a the pool, pool is the one that's passing. I've, I've, uh, I've attended events with that, that pool structure and it's it very good at making people into cautious fences. Yeah, that's that's yeah. my only point because that changes the way you compete and that changes the way you train for competitions and that allows to change the way your clubmates train with you and mm -hmm. so even even people that don't actually go to the event are going to be affected. Yeah. So I yeah, think it changes the fencing culture. That's the biggest difference you can make. The, the drawback, if so we want to call it, is that you can't have a final. Or at the very least, the final needs to have a different rule set. That's um, a winner. Yeah. No, but, no, no. You can, you can, have, a, you can have finals because the people who make it out of the pools then have a pool together. Yeah. And it's not an elimination necessarily, but you can have the final is... Yeah, we, whoever, had, a, we had a giant in that case. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, whoever, whoever, let's say you have two people who have the least of everyone in the pools, they have the least hits against them. Yeah. They're the finalists. They yeah, fence absolutely. it out. And it's like um, like 10 blows of the sword or five blows of the sword or whatever. Mm -hmm. And whoever ends up with the least blows on them. That's fundamentally what wins. we did. 
you, we, yeah. we went to three points actually uh, in every fight and we actually that that was 60 and, and more people per event so it was easy to arrange multiple layers of pools and yeah. at the first uh, at the first round at the eliminating round heavy double hitters were already out of of the equation yeah so the quality of fencing from quarterfinals semifinals and on kept going on yeah yeah it works so but this is this, this is an idea you have actually acted on i haven't in the sense that yes we have arranged uh, a couple events made this way but i haven't had either the time nor the the, the the poor grit, I would say, yeah. to, to, to take on this any further from 2019 or 20 okay. and so, to make it actually something, either a group of events, an international group of events or whatever. So make transforming this thing into a functioning league that can sort of compete with what exists at this moment. Ah, okay. And so so, so the idea is not just the rules yeah, it's, it's not just the rule set. It's it's creating events around that rule it, set. It's and making it. it's making him use that rule set. I would say that's the goal: making him <laughs> use that rule set. Oh, well, so good that's luck why with I that. haven't acted on that. I have Fair enough. Devised the basics of of the kind of rule set. Not even just the rules, but the kind of rule set. You can work around it. I mean, you can you can have as much as your kind of rules you want, but the core concept of the of the of the scoring system not even the rules mm-hmm. is that diffusing that excellent okay and and actually talking about it on this show might might help get the ball rolling a little bit because people who yeah. are organizing events might go actually that's very interesting we should try that and i would encourage them to do so because i have um i've been to events with that sort of structure and it does make a difference to how people behave um as one would expect well, brilliant. Um, <laughs> even with stuff that we're going to cut out, um, and even with those questions that I I wanted to ask you, but we just have. <laughs> we'll still have more than two hours. Yeah, I, I am. I yeah, and, and actually, I I need to go and cook dinner for my children. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> which I was supposed to start forty minutes ago. This has been a great conversation. So yeah, I just let me say thank for you. Almost four hours now. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me, Daria. And people who are listening, remember that if you want to hear him talk about the Pulse of Diva, Starbley and Starbley problem, then you're going to have to email me and let me know, and then I will invite him back on the show. Um, so Thanks thank you very much for coming me. along, Daria. Thanks <laughs> for inviting been... me. It was fun. <laughs> it was. And I should also say that we are both going to be producing articles for our respective blogs on the Volta question. And... Um, and so I'll put links to those in the show notes when they come out. So thanks so much for joining me, Dario. It's been lovely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dario. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, not least to get that video that I told you about and the contact details for the seminar organizers in Singapore and Wellington, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package too. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. 
And remember, go to sourceschool.shop to get from medieval manuscript to modern practice and make that one correction that we talked about in the interview. Um, you can also get a bunch of other books too while you're at it if you like. And I should let you know that the next installment of that series, From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice, The Wrestling Techniques of Fiori Delibri, is coming very soon. Expect an email next week. So first week of March. Oh dear God, I better get to work. Now, I would also like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. As you know, it takes time and money to run a podcast like this, and without them, I would have given up a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. As always, I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, which were originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next time when I'll be talking to historical novelist Elizabeth Chadwick whose subjects include William Marshall, John Fitzgilbert, who was William's father, William Marshall's granddaughter, Joanna, and her marriage to William de Valence, half-brother of Henry III, titled The Marriage of Lions. Oh dear, there's a bit of grammar editing to do there. Never mind. Um, she also has an entire trilogy on Eleanor of Aquitaine, and she's currently working on a series of novels set in the 14th century, beginning with The Royal Rebel, being the early life of Joan of Kent. So if you're into sort of 13th century English and French history, there isn't really a difference between English and French history in the 13th century because they were sort of kind of not one country, but they were inextricably intertwined. And if you just like historical novels in general, and if you're interested in some bits of like the writing process and how many novels Elizabeth had to write before she got one published, you definitely don't want to miss this episode. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have an extra minute, do leave a review or even rate the show. And of course, if you've particularly enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.